Hi, this is Brian Hughes with Third Degree Burn. What you're about to hear is the beginning of our coverage of the Dark Phoenix Saga, as we celebrate one of the largest seminal events in comics uh, over these next few weeks in preparation for the release of the Dark Phoenix movie. Now, as we go through this, uh, we bring in a couple of our listeners, John Hyatt, David Thompson, to uh, help us out on the show. And uh, they do a really wonderful job. And uh, they lighten the load on Tim and I so we can sit back and kind of enjoy ourselves in this. I, I think you'll find it rather entertaining. We had a lot of fun doing it. I know I, I laughed a lot more than normal. And that's saying something. So uh, on top of that, uh, yeah, there was a couple storms uh, each time that we were recording. And I got kicked out of Skype several times. I'll try to cover that up a little bit <laughs> uh, with some uh, fancy editing that's probably not as good as most can do. But hey, I'm trying. Anyway, sit back, relax, and enjoy Third Degree Burn as we cover the Dark Phoenix Saga. Cyclops, Stormwind, Nightcrawler, Wolverine, Colossus, Children of the Atom, Students of Charles Xavier, Mutants, feared and hated by the world they have sworn to protect. These are the strangest heroes of all, the uncanny X-Men. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Third Degree Burn. I am Tim Elliott and with me... The Zoom to my flash, Brian Hughes. Hello. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, let me slow down here. Hi. How's it going? <laughs> hey. <Smooth>. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, uh, really... Did you just swallow a bug or something? <laughs> no, I just slammed the brakes on there because I was going way too fast. Anyway, uh, welcome to our show, and uh, we're so glad to see you here. Uh, we've got some special guests on our show tonight. Um, we pulled uh, the couple interns uh, out of the pool, and uh, and we asked for no favors whatsoever. Um, but we've got with us as our special guests David Thompson and John Hyatt. Say hi, guys. Hi, hi guys. guys. <laughs> <laughs> the purpose and point of all this is we are celebrating the epic Dark Phoenix saga. And uh, while we can't on these this show and the next cover every single issue of it, we are going to cover the final four issues of it. X-Men's 135, 136, and, well, I say four issues, but it's four. It, it's two through three issues, which are four stories, basically. Uh, X-Men's 135, 136, and 137. I really suck at this, don't I? <laughs> it's too much yeah. pressure. So... Uh, you know, I put the word out there to all of our Facebook friends, asking to tell us about their experience reading the Dark Phoenix Saga and how it affected them. And we've gotten some very nice responses. We'll read some of them here uh, in, in the next couple of episodes. And uh, we even have a couple surprise ones. Uh, most notably, Rob Liefeld uh, wow. responded. Wow. And then uh, John Alisea. Now, I don't know if you guys recognize that name. He was the guy that has been interviewing John Byrne for sci-fi. Oh, and cool. so he did he did a series of uh, interviews. And so they both uh, responded and I, I got a, a, another bunch of them. And then, of course, some of the freaks have been recording some things for us. So uh, this is going to be a really special event. And I don't know how many shows we're going to wind up breaking this into uh, just because, you know, with Tim and I on here, we go on forever. So how long is this going to take to get through all of this? 
with the four of us. And you know, we've been, you know, talking over the last couple of weeks and, you know, figuring out our rhythms. And all I found out is that, man, we can go on forever. And I'm talking yeah. like, like, um, what's that movie uh, with uh, You're Killing Me Smalls? The Sandlot. Forever. <laughs> So. No, we're straight into the point. <laughs> yeah. uh, before we get into the book, though, and we're gonna obviously we're gonna start off on X Men one thirty five. Um, is there any news that we want to discuss before before we get going? Anybody? Uh, I don't... Any any information? Anything new that's positive and uplifting and not gonna break our hearts? Uh... Well, the new Godzilla trailer looks pretty good. You brought that up off, yes, off mic. That, that yeah. looks pretty sweet. That looks really, really awesome. I'm looking forward and to that. The I'm... early word, the early word on Avengers Endgame is that it, it will exceed all expectations. They're saying 300 million opening weekend. Oh my gosh! It in here, you know, here in the United States, what uh, it's going to do overseas. I don't know if it's all breaking at the same time overseas. But if it does, I, oh. I mean, it, it, it could be the biggest opening of all time worldwide, not just in does the that, U.S. Does that movie qualify for an intermission? Because at three hours and, what, ten minutes or some, somewhere around there, I'm thinking when you get the, the movie theater, you know, 54-ounce big gulp, you've got the large tub of popcorn, you're going to need a break. They don't do intermissions anymore. No, they don't. But they don't. They're uh, but you can now buy pickle juice at the counter, That's and that'll cause your body to store the water rather than having to jettison it. So, <laughs> so everyone will be super bloated coming out of Avengers. Well, uh, yeah. not That's if you're be... in the Super XD chairs because those have their own reservoir. Oh, you. <laughs> uh, be sure to pick up your special Avengers in-game catheter. Um, <laughs> Made I by think, Stark I, Industries. I, I, yeah, exactly. I, I think they're afraid that that I don't mean to insult today's audiences, but I'm going to. Uh, they're I think they're afraid that if they have an intermission. People are going to think the film is over. They'll leave. Hey, Titanic had an intermission. It said intermission. And I wish I'd left during the intermission. Oh, I, I didn't have an intermission mm -hmm. in, in that one. Shots fired for Titanic. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's that's even on the. Uh... Oh, man, my wife and I watched that very early into our relationship. And uh, I think it was VHS, in fact. And uh, it had an intermission, you know, title card that said, you know, 10, ten minutes. Do yeah. any I, of I, the Tolkien movies have intermissions? I don't think so. The most oh, notably, no. Return of the King, did that one. <laughs> I mean, it should have had seven intermissions, apparently, with all the endings it ran into. Um, yeah, that, that was a bladder buster. Well, if you have to go, go halfway. Don't go wait until the last quarter of the film, I would think. It's amazing that, you know, they they still had to go that long to cram that much into it. Um, of course, I'm hearing really positive buzz. Of course, what I'm hearing is from Kevin Smith, and he loves everything. Yeah, non-biased at all. Yeah. Totally critical eye for uh, for all comic book. Mm -hmm. now, I'm, I'm excited. This is the end, you know, the, the, uh, the bookend, right, to... Ten years of Marvel films. This is going to set us up for the next chapter of uh, you know the the MCU. Well, they're saying so actually that that uh, Far from Spider-Man: Far from Home is the end of Phase Three. Mm. Oh, okay. And they're going to take apparently they're going to take a little break after that. 
Not too uh, long. So, that's too. That's too much of a cash cow. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's you know, do a. Let's do a. This is not really a spoiler, but the movie hasn't come out yet. Does everybody got their tickets? Yep. Nope. No. I'm gonna wait until after, at least after down. opening week. Yeah. Well, I, I just can't, I can't be in that full of a, a cinema with that stuff. It's going to drive me crazy. So I'll wait a bit. Well, Tim uh, and I, as well as our our other friends, uh, Mr. Canapa <laughs> and Mr. Carlisle, may try to record something after we've all seen the movie. Kind of a that round table fun. thing. That yeah. would be fun. That would be fun. So let's do our round table here. This yes. Is, again, this is not spoilers. I want to go around. Who do you think is going to defeat Thanos? Who's going to kill Thanos? If he dies, he may not die. Well, to me, it seems like they're building up Captain Marvel a lot, so I'm kind of leaning to. But that may be the red, the red herring that. Oh yeah, it's going to be Carol Danvers that goes in and saves the day. Uh, and they might do just a big twist, and it's actually Ant Man. Well, that would be cool. That would be. <laughs> well, you're, cool. well, you're coming at it from the wrong position, though. Do you think they're really going to kill him? No, I don't think they'll kill him. No, nothing stays dead in a Marvel universe. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, with if they can, if they have successfully, which is relative, resurrected Bucky, that and Phoenix, then uh, all bets are off the table. Only thing I think they haven't done is resurrected Uncle Ben. Yeah, he's the only one that really stays dead. <laughs> For now. For now. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're going to do a what if cartoon series. So you know, what if Uncle Ben lives? Will be one of those, I'm sure. Yeah. Um. I think Thanos will actually kill himself or take himself hmm. out. Um, oh, but I think that, that Nebula is going to be a big, big part of that. Uh, yeah. That being Makes said, sense. that being said, Nebula. I think um, Nebula gets to live through the movie, but I'm not sure about Thor or Iron Man. I could see them killing off uh, if, if, Downey Jr. wants to leave. I could see him leaving the franchise. Uh, I don't think they'll kill off Thor because I, I think uh, Hemsworth said he'd play it forever. I don't think. Uh, maybe Cap because you know Chris Evans is is continually threatened to quit acting and leave the leave the movie. So it and could be. Watiti's already said that he wants to do a Thor four. Yeah. So that, that's a, a good possibility. Yeah, I don't think I don't think uh, they're gonna kill off Thor. It could be Cap. I mean, it's, I think it's a high chance it could be uh, Iron Man. Um, I'm kind of hoping the person that kills slash defeats Thanos, it could be Gamora, because she seems to have the most uh, right now the most emotional reason to do it. Uh, I hope it's Cap. Was Gamora the one in Infinity Gauntlet that killed him or took the gauntlet away? I should say. I don't know. I never read it. What? Oh, this it. podcast has to be over. We need <laughs> no. to go read that. Come back. <laughs> you gotta understand. This is weird. Um, I love Jim Starlin's work, and um, I, I, you know, but I've never read any of his cosmic stuff. Uh, my my Jim Starlin experience was with DC and Superman in DC Comics Presents, and for whatever yeah. reason, I just never, you know, looked at any at any of Starlin's cosmic stuff. And, you know, either. When I first started reading and was getting everything off the spinner racks, it just never showed up. And then when I went to the comic book stores, I I was looking for, you know, my Spider-Man, my Batman, my Superman, X-Men. I wasn't I wasn't branching out to the cosmic stuff. And nobody was pushing it on me either. 
I didn't notice Starlin's work again until Gilgamesh and uh, Cosmic Odyssey. Gilgamesh. Of it, his writing on Batman, of course. Yeah. I've read some of his Captain Marvel work. Uh, I've got a kind of a crate of that. It's kind of cool. Yeah, his cosmic stuff is is really good. Um, you can definitely see a shift in Captain Marvel when uh, Starlin takes over. In fact, there's that's available multiple you know trade paperbacks as you can imagine, right? Marvel ready to to print some money, right? They start pushing out the trade paperbacks, so you can pick those up pretty cheap and get a good introduction to Captain Marvel and get uh, you know a couple different perspectives. But yeah, Starlin does a great job, and you can tell he's He's got an idea of where he wants to to take him. Uh, yeah, I don't honestly. I don't know what they're going to do. Um, I think they've the as a comic book person, you got to separate the movies from the comics, which is Absolutely. really hard. It's Absolutely. so hard. Um, you know, my wife is. Uh, you know, she's watch. She watches all these movies with me, and um, after every movie, right, I get the was that how it went in the comic books. <laughs> You know, or tell me more about this person or that person. And sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong based on, you know, what they want to do, you know, in that particular universe. So I, I try and go into it with an open mind of, you know, they've they've got a template, right, with the, the comics. But whether they stick to it or not, uh, I don't know. I I will say I agree that um, Chris Evans, I think, is 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 done, which makes sense. He's still a young guy. He's got a lot of time left to act. And, and probably doesn't want to fall into, you know, the Christopher Reeve yeah. trap, right, of uh, people only see him as Captain America. Uh, you know, as far as Downey, I, I would be thrilled if he played Iron Man until he decided to stop acting. Because <laughs> Iron Man's just a guy in a suit. You know, he, he doesn't have to have, you know, anything more than that. So, you know, uh, but I don't know. He gets paid big bucks. What if it turns out, though, that Thanos is Tony Stark of the future? Yeah, I'm not going to like that. (laughs) That was one of those theories that's been going around, and I'm just like, okay, that's really messed up. That's that's stretching. I did hear that uh, he was the only one that got a complete script. Everybody else got just their parts or their pages. Yeah, they've been very hush-hush. So, obviously, they're setting something up, and... Yeah, I'm surprised to hear that Spider-Man uh, will be the kind of bookend because I'll put out the unpopular opinion. We watched Spider-Man, uh, the first one, which Homecoming. was that was it Homecoming? Yeah. It was so boring. I uh, We got halfway through it. We got to the boat scene, and then it was like, uh, we're done. And, wow. and ma- I know. And, and I think part of that comes from when you grew up with Spider-Man. So someone that just turned 40 this year, my Spider-Man is the late 20s, early 30s, you know, married Spider-Man. Well, guys, there's a harsh reality that we're all starting to face right now. And that is that, you know, there was a time when we, you know, were like, we're really relating to Spider-Man and, you know, at that age. And that's why you gravitate towards him when you're a kid. And then, sure. you, 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 of course, you can relate to other characters. You like to be able to relate to Batman, but... You know, you know the money aspect of it, not the dead parents part, but <laughs> but see the thing is that you get to gone dark. you get to a point where you're just sitting there going, and it's like is a revelation I had today um, is that you know no longer 
you know, am I do I sit there and I think of of what it would be like to be Batman or to be Superman or to be all that? Now I'm like, what would it be like to be Alfred? And that, that that's my character to relate to once you get into the 40s. Of course, on on Gotham they made Alfred a badass, which was of course. You, know, you know the aspects of that were pretty cool. And and of course in the the Nolan films, you know Alfred was Michael Caine, and so you got you know that to look forward to. <clears throat> the size of a tangerine. Uh, <laughs> Michael yeah, Caine. And, yeah. Yeah, Michael Caine. And then, of course, uh, um, oh, my gosh, I'm forgetting the name from uh, the, the DC. Jeremy movies. Irons. Jeremy Irons, yes. Well, but, Jeremy Irons is <laughs> Jeremy Irons. I mean, you know, he's worth watching no matter what he's doing. Well, you could listen to him read the phone book. It's like, Well, look what they it. did with, uh, is anybody watching the new Megan P.I.? No. no. Uh, I'm not either, but I, I watched. <laughs> I'm not either of them. But I'm going to critique it. No, well, I watched an episode because I was curious. Because uh, I didn't realize the guy's playing Nagam is uh, El Diablo or whatever his name was from uh, Suicide Squad, the fire oh, guy. Really? Yeah, that's that's Nagam. You've got to be Hernandez. kidding me. <laughs> yeah, yes. no. Uh, and they've taking they've t- well they've done a ginger swap. Uh, because Higgins is now a woman, she's much younger, and she's like an ex-British uh, agent or some kind of a you know former you know. Of course, they did that kind of with Higgins in the original show. He was a former right. soldier, but they're uh, that's that's kind of what they're doing with um, like they're doing with Alfred. But you know. see, and my my Alfred is Michael Go mm-hmm. from the '89 Batman. I just thought he really embodied, you know the. The uh, uh, you know elder statesman, right? Who I always—that's mm-hmm. how I guess I always pictured Alfred, right? The even-keeled kind of statesman, right? Who took on this responsibility of raising Bruce, who you know has the the morals and values and you know high ethics that we all you know espouse to. He's kind of like uh, Batman's conscience. He is very much, uh, but I, I I agree that in Gotham, right? They de-aged him quite a bit. And, uh, you know, made, made him into, you know, uh, an action star, which they're doing a Alfred. It's either a TV show or a movie. Yeah. TV show. And when they, anou- yeah, when I, when they announced that, I was dying because if you've seen the Teen Titans go to the movies, there's a part in there where they rip Robin about, you know, um, Alfred got a movie before you. <laughs> That's great. Oh, man. The name's Pennyworth. Alfred Pennyworth. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Highly well, recommend that's, that. Uh, that's Sean Pertwee play. Sean Pertwee plays Alfred, right? Yes. Awesome. John Pertwee's son. Doc, Doctor Two, Doctor Who's son. Yeah. Did not know that, but yep. uh, you, you're going to kill me. I I don't watch Doctor Who. <gasps> Second time in the podcast, this has to end. <laughs> That's I right. did watch. I did watch the other series with Captain Harkness. What was that called? I forget. Oh, uh, with Captain Jack or whatever his name was. Yeah, Jack Harkness. Uh, what was that? I heard it got really bad in the last season or so. It was not. It kept getting better. Uh, oh, and they had the movie too. It was uh, Children of Earth. Oh, what was the name of that show? What is the name of that show? <laughs> I'm not a big. I'm a huge classic Who fan. I'm not a big fan of. Uh, the revival, Torchwood. 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 Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 
But, uh, <clears throat> no, no, that was a fun show, though. Um, I, I enjoyed it, and I actually enjoyed that with nobody dying, the, the concept behind that. That was pretty messed up. Yeah, and John Barrowman's been involved with uh, the comic books uh, mm-hmm. for Torchwood. Oh, yeah. he's, a, he's, a, he's a good advocate for uh, kind of the geek culture. I guess he's very good on the, the con scene, you know, talking about Torchwood yeah. and Doctor Who and all that. Yeah, they like to get him and, um, oh, I can't even remember his name now, Mal Reynolds, um, together at the cons all the time, like they're, they're each other's lost twin or something. <laughs> well, they had recently, in one of the Dallas shows, didn't they have kind of a Firefly, or was it last year, kind of a Firefly reunion? Um, I was at one a couple of years ago where they basically yeah. had everybody except for him uh, yeah. there. I mean, even Sean Maher and, and uh, Crystal State. Uh, Adam Baldwin and golly, uh, Alan Tudyk wasn't there though, and that was that was a shame. But <clears throat> and Zoe wasn't there. Okay, it wasn't that much of a reunion. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, this is where I have to turn in my geek card because I watched a couple episodes of Firefly and I thought it was incredibly boring. Um, I'm right there with you. I whatever it did not catch. It didn't click with me either. Guys, it's why I am married, and and I want a moratorium on trying to get them to bring back Firefly. No, the show is uh, over. I, it those, is. Those it's, actors it's, don't want to go back and do that. Right. It's been it's been gone too long. I mean, just bringing them back together, it'd be like, you know... A poor Brady Bunch movie. When they yeah. made and there's like 12 people teacher. that want to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. So, um, what's this podcast about? <laughs> well, welcome to a Pop Culture <laughs> Cast. In the, in, the, in the mad words of Ross Geller... Anyway, I'm Thomas DJ, top professional. I'm Scott McGregor, talented amateur. And we'd like to invite you to join us for our journey through every adventure of the Avengers. No, not that Avengers. You won't find any tights, magic hammers, or fancy shields here. But you will find some supervillains and some hot women in tight leather, so there is that. And champagne. Oh, yeah, lots of champagne. With Umbrella Charm and Bowler, that other Avengers podcast, covering the seminal spy series that lasted from 1961 to 1969 on an episode-by-episode basis. Join us as we explore the television series that helps shape pop culture and made an icon out of Diana Rigg, Honor Blackman, and Patrick Dean. With Umbrella Charm and Bowler. That other Avengers podcast, coming straight towards you every month. Only on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. And we're back. And now, before we get started, um, I would like each of our uh, interns here to go ahead and give us their little uh, John Byrne comic book origin. So, uh, John, would you like to give it a start? Yeah, sure. So I started collecting comics in 1976, late 1976, when I started element sixth grade in elementary school. And I met these two kids on the monkey bars, and we used to hang out and talk sci-fi and things like that, uh, Bionic Man, a $6 million man, Bionic Woman, things like that. And they started talking about comic books. Well, for some reason, I had never really experienced comic books. And so they, we had a sleepover or something, and they showed me all of these cool little magazines with great superheroes and Richie Rich and Casper and uh, all of that, uh, and they were definitely really into the uh, superheroes and mostly the groups. And so I really got excited to look at some groups and uh, like Avengers and Justice League, Legion of Superheroes, uh, and 
Fantastic Four. So those were really, really cool. And so I started collecting them. And I grew up where we didn't have comic shops. So you basically got you were, you basically got your 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 luck of the draw at a newsstand and a spinner rack or a a stand with all the other magazines. And so I started going down to my local grocery store and picking out comic books, mowing lawns for all uh, for the twenty five thirty cents at the time when I started and uh, picking up comic books as I went along. And I remember the first Avengers comic that I remember buying off a stand was 163, and that was the great George Perez cover of Ant-Man um, knocking out uh, Wonder Man and the Vision. So that kind of got me onto the Avengers. Well, two issues after that, John Byrne was on the book, and I really didn't take a lot of notice of John Byrne then. I mean, uh, I was, what, 11 years old, so... The art style was somewhat noticeable, but I didn't really pick up on it. It wasn't until I picked up X-Men 108 that I noticed John Byrne's artwork as, oh, this is different than, than, the, than the, the guy before in the issue before, which was then it was a bi-monthly book, so that was two months earlier, and that was uh, Dave Cockrum. And Dave Cockrum was fantastic, and he is... Uh, an amazing was an amazing artist and his work is legend so but it is different than what john byrne did and so and i think burns is compared to cockrum is far more i don't know refined i don't want to say clean as as, as if uh, cockrum's is not a really nice tight thing but i think burns work is a little bit more refined than cockrum's was and that was really interesting so then i started I guess noticing the art style in the different books I was picking up, such as Marvel Team Up. At that month, he was also teamed up. He was doing uh, Marvel Team Up with Spider-Man and the Wasp and uh, Avengers. Then I, that's when I started going back and I noticed the the Avengers issues that he did. So that's when I really started noticing a name to an artist rather than just basic differences. So uh, and I started picking out the friends, the the ones that I like the most, like George Perez. Uh, he was doing everything uh he did uh or he's doing a lot yeah. and he did logan's run the ad adaptation of the movie logan's run which i love that movie so i when i saw a comic book on the stand i had to buy that and he did that entire uh, adaptation which was amazing and beautiful so uh, you know noticing burns work on that and then the x-men afterwards was just phenomenal and i had to have everything john Byrne. i just loved the way he drew people the way he drew buildings and technology and just the crispness of his work was just for me uh, far superior to even a lot of the standard artists which i do love but and especially appreciate more now but man at that time it really it, i think it really booted the x-men stories a heck of a lot better because he really defined the characters that way as well as claremont's defining them with his storytelling, I think Byrne actually was able to help us define them with his artwork. And yeah. I've been a fan ever since. I, I I agree with you completely there on that. That was really nice. Thank you. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. All right, David, let's see how you can do. Can you live up to that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> ditto. 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 Uh, <laughs> wow, that's great. <laughs> So I am uh, a little bit younger than John. I'm 40. So my cult, uh, comic reading started in the mid to late 80s. 
And uh, I think like most people got the hand-me-down comics. Actually, for my, my grandmother, um, had quite a bit of comic books. And she would let us take some comics uh, every now and then. And uh, that started my love of comics. Well, part of uh, our family tradition, as it were, was Sundays uh, we would get to go out to a place called Old Country Buffet uh, after church. And there was always a long line. And so my dad, uh, there were four of us, two two boys and two girls, uh, would give us five bucks and we could go down to the local, uh, you know, magazine comic shop uh, and uh, browse, you know, the comics while the, uh, we were waiting for the line to move forward. That's when I really started to, you know, notice um, you know, different titles. Because before they were always hand-me-down comics, right? I really didn't have any say in what I got. It's just I got what I got. And, uh, you know, I, I agonize over what I was going to get for uh, my $5 and pick out a few titles. Well, that went on for a couple of years, uh, much like John um, started earning, you know, some money on the side doing, you know, lawn mowing and different things around the house and, uh, you know, had a few more bucks to spend. Now we're probably early 90s and death of Superman is happening. And that started the, um, I don't want to say obsession, but it started, you know, the, the serious collector in me. Uh, and that's how I actually first discovered John Byrne. So as death of Superman was happening, I got really into Superman. And, and I remember talking to uh, one of the, the guys that worked at the comic store about, you know, hey, this is, you know, number 75, 76, 77, you know, as that story was unfolding, how did this start? You know, do you guys have number one or two or any of the issues that came before? And this was, you know, a time when, you know, everything was in quarter boxes and 50 cent boxes. And, and he just pointed to, you know, probably a hundred plus long boxes on the floor and said, yeah, they're, they're somewhere in there. Mm. And <laughs> so, you know, this is this is uh, pre my my back and knees you know uh, hurting looking through long boxes you know crouching on the ground so I I dove in head first and started digging out issues and one of the first ones I found was Superman number one you know, of course by John Byrne and just devoured it and read every issue I could find um, in those long boxes from John Byrne and much like John around that same time I started realizing that. There were different people that made comics. It wasn't just the same couple of guys and gals that drew and wrote them. There were actually differences uh, between their artwork and their writing styles and, you know, the layouts of the pages. And uh, that that's what led me to appreciate what Byrne had been doing, you know, so many years before that had laid the groundwork for me, uh, you know, uh, really getting into my love of, of Superman and, and not only his comic, but you know, kind of the ideals of Superman. Uh, I still read comics today. Uh, I probably buy way too many of them. In fact, I run a little comic book store on eBay called the Comic Ferret. Um, my standing deal with my wife is that I uh, am limited to 10,000 comics at any time in my own personal collection. <laughs> so I have to, uh, you know, uh, curate what's in those boxes very carefully uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I still love comics now. I think they're 
are uh, a lot of um, you know uh, good talent today still making comics. Obviously, they're a lot more money than they were when John started buying comics and I started buying comics. But there there are still gems out there, and uh, I think you guys covered one of the ones that that Burn was doing recently, which was the Star Trek New Visions mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can definitely find stuff that uh, will bring you back and make you feel you know, like a kid or, or give you a great story and, and, uh, you know, keep renewing that appreciation of the art form, you know, holding, you know, a paper comic in your hand and, you know, flipping through the pages or flipping back. So that's my comic origin. Wow. And see now nice. people are, are trolling your site right now. <laughs> right. right uh, yeah. I can't wait. I'll get all kinds of, Hey, were you that guy in the John Byrne podcast? <laughs> so you're selling your Darth Vader dark horse books. Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, yeah. Luckily, my wife has not given me a, 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 a limit. I don't think she realizes how many I've got. To, yeah. Uh, yeah. She just looks at all my stuff and says, you need to get rid of some of it. Well, when we moved into this house three years ago, um, we purposely found a house that had a large storage room that we could build in, you know, shelving and space, you know, not only for, you know, the side business, because I have a day job, too. Um, the side business, but also my own comic collection. And uh, yeah, she she's she just assumes there's about ten thousand, but she doesn't know exactly how many comics fit into a short box. <laughs> so there's probably there's probably more like fourteen or fifteen thousand. But I I truly have limited you know my collection to only now being Batman, Superman, uh, uh, Justice League. And then uh, X-Men, and then, of course, I have special sections for things like uh, Burns, Star Trek New Visions, which I've loaned out many times and people love them, uh, as well as his Fantastic Four run and things like that. Wow. Wow. Well, that's that's great. And, you know, I mean, the thing is that you, what, what you both have talked about are things that we all, of course, feel and go through. I mean, the, the pangs of, of uh, the home collection and what you can do with it. I know that um, in the last several years, I've kind of pared down my collection. Of course, I was the guy that, you know, everybody would go, hey, Brian, you, you collect comics, right? Here, take all these uh, 90s comics that I don't want. Oh, yeah. They're not worth anything. Or, uh, <laughs> but, you know, everybody is like, hey, can you tell me how much all my comics are worth? Would you pay, them, pay me for that, you know? <laughs> right. Um, you know, it's funny you bring up the, the 90s because that's part of what pushed me to burn was if you remember image was brand new on the scene shortly Mm -hmm. after you know around the same time that the death Mm -hmm. of superman was happening and i didn't like any of it i was like i don't understand this you know the artwork was all over the place this was the the decade right of like scratchy lines like the more lines the better and i just could not get into it i i prefer a clean line you know clean inking um you know attention to detail and that kind of stuff went out in that kind of mid-90s period. That is, that's actually what helped to drive me into that back catalog of, of Burn. Yeah, well, see, for me, I had determined early on that if someone has more than six pockets, they're going to get confused. <laughs> and, and so when they started putting more and more and more pockets on everybody, that was when I pretty much checked out. You cannot have enough pouches. Come on. You cannot oh, have enough pouches. I, I, I mean, the thing is you're going to get lost. Wait, yeah, where's, where's that matter transporter? No, 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 that's a that's dog food. Okay, wait, over here. I got oh, that's a grenade. Don't get those mixed up. 
<laughs> it's no I mean, different than Batman's utility belt. He just kind of you just can't see it because it's behind that cape. Yeah, but Batman's got a limited amount of items within that utility That's true. belt. But when he's got, got. But he also has everything. When you got, he's got limited amount of everything. No, no, he's not not got everything. He only has things you can put Bat in front of. <laughs> well, he only needs. He's like James Bond. He only has what he absolutely needs before he knows it. What he needs for that mission. But you know, when you're going to the ocean, you need to take bat shark repellent. Pellet. Well, yeah, of course. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I do appreciate it, guys. I really thanks thanks a whole lot there. Mm. Sure. Of course. It's a All lot right. of fun. Now, this isn't going to make it so everybody knows you instantly. You're, you're going to have to distinguish yourself, uh, uh, you know, really well. So, you know. Uh, Monetary donations are always good, um, especially to Scott Gardner. He really, really, you know, takes care of you if you give him money to start off. Uh, <laughs> that, that Amazon money's dried up, so. Oh man, yeah, that's it. We we need to take that off of our closing. I did. Okay, well, I took it off the last. Uh, if you've got my copy, I took it off the last one I edited, the Doom Patrol. Uh, if you've got. My copy, you can cut it out, or I can send you the one I cut out. Yeah, and I put okay. a new tag, a new, a new um, zinger at the end, or uh, it's not called a zinger; it's called a closer. Closer, yeah, but it's not called a closer. It's called a, it, it's a closer, but there's a term for it. It's a, I changed out our our burn baby burn by uh, the penguin, and I put in uh, Michael Caine's quote about the guy wanting stealing the uh, rubies and stuff from. Batman. Some people just want to watch the world burn. Yeah. <laughs> so who is our lucky contestant today that's going to uh, give us everything about this uh, book, X-Men, Uncanny X-Men 135? Well, wait a minute. Wait, where, where we got to get a little backstory? Yeah, I oh, think John right. was going to set the stage for John's us. John's going to uh, set us up here. Okay, John. I was going to try to do this in my best radio voice but um i don't think i can manage it so um i'll just um read what i have previously in the all new all different x-men returning from a mission in space jean gray is exposed to the deadly radiation of a solar flare briefly attains her ultimate potential as a telepath and telekinetic jean becomes a being of pure thought and then reforms herself upon return to earth with a new costume identity and power of phoenix it is with this incredible power that Jean repairs the fractured M-Cran crystal, or McCran is how I used to say it, uh, but voluntarily restrains her powers afterwards in order to keep them under control. Her vast potential makes her a target for Mastermind, who is attempting to prove himself in order to join the prestigious inner circle of the Hellfire Club. Under the identity of Jason Wingard, he begins to seduce Jean. With the help of a mind tap device created by the club's white queen, Emma Frost, Mastermind projects his illusions directly into Phoenix's mind. These illusions cause her to believe that she is reliving the memories of an ancestor, Lady Grey, who in Mastermind's illusions was the Hellfire Club, Black Queen, and lover of one of Wingard's ancestors. The battle with the Hellfire Club begins with the introduction of Kitty Pride, Dazzler, and the White are uh, being pursued by the White Queen. The X-Men discover who their enemy truly is and they pursue the Hellfire Club to their New York headquarters. Battles ensued over a couple of issues, and the next, and the X-Men are captured, revealing Jean as the Black Queen. Uh, 
Phoenix has accepted the Black Queen as her identity, a decadent role that allows her to to relish the extremes of human emotion and begins to break down the barriers that she has erected. Scott tried to break their break her control or break the control of the Hellfire Club through the psychic rapport and is slain. This releases Jean from the psychic control, and Dark Phoenix is born. And now, issue 135. Awesome. Well done. That was really nice. (laughs) Very nice. That was was with the help of Wikipedia. That was part of their stuff and part of mine. Yeah, and if you have the trade, that was like uh, uh, 810-some pages of comics there. (laughs) (laughs) And I enjoyed them all. Right. So So I have uh, X-Men 135. Mm Mm-hmm to get us started here on the Dark Phoenix. And uh, this was cover dated July 1980 with an on-sale date of April 15th of 1980. Uh, this date, I should say, comes courtesy of Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Your writer for this issue is Chris Claremont. Your pencils are John Byrne. Inker is Terry Austin. Letterer is Tom Orzachowski. And your colorist is Bob Sharon. The synopsis for this issue comes from Marvel Wikia, because I'm a big believer of not reinventing the wheel if you don't have to. Pardon me. Can we just cover what other books came out? Yeah, go ahead. In July 1980, we had Captain America number 247 by Dawn's Early Light, uh, where he did the pencils. And that was the beginning of the Machine Smith story where we thought he was being attacked by Baron Strucker. Uh, during that great run with Roger Stern and Joe Rubenstein. Uh, Fantastic Four, number 220, and the lights went out all over the world. Uh, now, wasn't that the red cover? Uh, the, that, okay, that was the red cover, uh, the yep. famous red cover, and that, of course, was uh, the first one where Byrne did story and art at Marvel. Now, check this out. Along with that, he did Amazing Spider-Man 163, A Method in His Madness. He did the pencils there. Uh, and as uh, the untold legend of the Batman number one in the beginning. Now, that's got him doing pencils on, what, four different books, five yep. different five different books with the X-Men. And, uh, and of course, with, with X-Men, of course, he did plot and pencils because he, he, he and uh, Chris Claremont did the old Marvel style of, of uh, that. So... I'm I'm thinking that the Untold Legend of the Batman and even Amazing Spider-Man might have been in the drawer for a while. I know that Byrne, you know, had several months previous where he was only doing two books a month. And that was at the end of 79 and beginning of 1980. So I recall recall reading about Untold Legend of the Batman that he had told that DC asked him to do the the entire three issue miniseries. And he said, "Okay, here's my time frame. And they dragged on the story so long that he couldn't finish it. That's why only right. issue number one is inked or drawn by John Byrne, and the rest is done by Jim Apparel, right. an excellent Batman artist. But yeah. um, uh, but John Byrne doing uh, Untold Legends of Batman number one was really cool. I remember buying this off the off the spinner rack. I was like, mm-hmm. oh my god, this is awesome. Yeah, I loved every every bit of that, and that told me everything about his s- story. Everything about Batman's story that you needed, and showed you everything about the Batcave, and there were so yeah. many different different bits and pieces to that. Um, of course, I understand Terry Austin was originally supposed to ink it instead of Jim Aparo, which that would have been really cool too. But uh, what we got still was a great product. 
Yes. And, and and it was a big hit. Um, I remember being given like a, a, a novel size copy, you know, like a, a digest size copy of uh, Untold Legends of the Batman when I was very young. Mm-hmm. Black and white, and, like three panels yep, per page yep, or something. Yeah. Yep. They also so it, it was in print with, for a long time. And, and they put it out with a record, too. So you could get the Untold <laughs> yeah. Legend of the Batman with a narration. That's like a power cool. record? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was never uh, uh, able to hear that because I was too busy listening to my He-Man power record. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, so I'm sorry to interrupt there, but I, I felt that we should cover that for you guys. No, it's great. The synopsis. It's great to put it in context. You know, one of as a, someone who reads a lot of modern comics, there's there's definitely a frustration with uh, many modern comic books. You know, are late. Um, you know, they're habitually late. Uh, some artists, you know, they can't even get one, one book, book done. Out. On. And look at this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you had people back in the 60s and 70s doing three, four, five books a month. Look at Kirby's output. And the yeah. rate Marvel first started. Well, Byrne, I think, had a reputation for being a very fast artist. He could do uh, a, a couple pages a day, I think. I was watching a YouTube video of uh, with John Byrne recently, and it was he. They were talking about the Phoenix, the upcoming Phoenix movie, and the interviewer asked him, "So, how did you get started with this?" And he said, "Well, Marvel asked me if I could do a book, and he said, well, what's my time frame?'" And they go, "Well, we need to do this in a week." He says, "What am I going to do with the other three days of the week?" <laughs> That's great. Oh man. Well, uh, do you want to get in, get into it? Yeah. Alrighty. So our synopsis for X-Men 135, which is titled Dark Phoenix, is taken from the Marvel Kia. And we pick up where uh, just after uh, John had set the stage for us here. Uh, having escaped from the Hellfire Club, Jean Grey finally gives into the dark side of her soul, awakened by Mastermind, becoming the Dark Phoenix and destroying the X-Men's escape craft over Central Park. Miraculously, the X-Men survived the explosion and, with quick thinking, managed to make it safely to the ground with only minor injuries. Their attempts to talk Jean out of attacking them fails, and she easily trounces the team with her cosmic-level abilities. While not far away at the Hellfire Club, the authorities are investigating what patrons there believe was an attack by the X-Men. After seeing his colleague, Henry Leyland, Wheeled into an ambulance, Sebastian Shaw confronts U.S. Senator Robert Kelly, a guest at the party that night. He recommends to Kelly using his government connections to restart the bomb-bomb-bomb Sentinel program so that they can hunt down the dangerous mutants as part of his secret scheme to vilify and destroy the X-Men. Before the two men can discuss things further, Shaw is shocked to see a giant phoenix effect fill the sky. Shaw is not the only one. As Dark Phoenix uses her powers to fly away from Earth, her abilities are picked up by Mr. Fantastic's, Mr. Fantastic's scientific equipment, Spider-Man's spider sense, Doctor Strange's mystical senses, and the Silver Surfer's cosmic senses. As Jean departs, an Avengers Quinjet lands in Central Park, containing the Beast, who has come to the aid of his former comrades in the X-Men. He finds them beaten but alive, and agrees to fly them back to the X-Mansion in Salem Center. While in New Mexico, Professor X has a video call with Moira McTaggart on Muir Island, where they both compare notes and realize that their greatest fear 
that Jean has lost control of her new powers has finally become a nightmarish reality. While in space, Dark Phoenix loops around the sun and uses his gravity to slingshot her out to a warp gate not far outside of Earth's solar system. This sends her to the Debari system, which is part of the Shi'ar Empire. She then feasts on the solar system star, causing it to go nova and obliterate all the living creatures on the planet Debari. This is witnessed by a Shi'ar flagship that goes in to investigate. While on the Shi'ar throne world, Empress Liliandra is awoken to the news of the destruction and witnesses the destruction of the flagship at Phoenix's hands. Liliandra grimly considers that they must deal with this threat no matter the cost. On Earth, the X-Men have returned to their headquarters and wonder what they will do next. Scott, who still has his telepathic rapport with Jean, witnesses the entire genocide through his mind's eye and warns his fellow X-Men that Jean is returning to Earth and she's hungry. Ooh. Wow. wow. That was great. Thank you. Very good. Yeah. A lot happens in this issue. You know, we talk today about, uh, you know, uh, older issues, if they were written today, being broken up into two or three issues um, or even six to, to make a trade or a complete arc. So much happens um, just in issue 135 that uh, it's kind of staggering. This would be a 12 issue run if it was done today. Oh, for sure. So on the cover here, we've got, um, a I have to say, a deranged-looking Jean Grey uh, you know, uh, grasping the X-Men logo and crushing it between her hands, her eyes you know, staring at the reader as uh, the bodies of her comrades lay around her uh, with the title reading, Defeated by Dark Phoenix. Now, this, this cover was a, uh, an homage to a Neil Adams cover, wasn't it? Is it with the uh, living monolith? Yeah, with the living, living monolith. monolith in it. Yeah, I think they they had some trouble with it though, and I don't recall the whole story on it, but I know that uh, there was like a couple versions of that cover because they felt that the people couldn't make out X Men. Mm. I I have read that in I am I have the uh, 30th anniversary oversized edition of the of the saga, and that was some, one of the comments they made in there was that it was that that was one of the issues they had. That's uh, kind of silly. It's like I was 15 at that. And I'm like, even then I had no problem reading it, so I don't know what. They're... <laughs> yeah, they must have thought that we were pretty stupid. Well, they I... they talk you talk about covers that grab you too, right? Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is lost today is, um, you know, uh, a cover that makes you want to pick it up. There's no way you could have walked into a comic shop in July or I'm sorry, in April of 1980. And not picked up this book, right? Well, you, you, I got to tell you though that before X Men One Thirty Two, I'd never heard of them. And really? you know, well, yeah, my, I mean, it goes all the way back to my my X Men, my John Byrne origin. Is that um, I was not reading X Men or any of that, and I, you know, at that point was not really noticing the difference between different artists in, in, in mm -hmm. the books. I would just you know read each comic as it came along, and you know. There, there it was. And um, a friend of my brother's, a guy by the name of King Hoover, gave me a stack of books for my birthday. And in it was a, a very old Green Lantern, issue 12. Um, 
Wow. And uh, Amazing Adventures number five, which is a reprint of the very first meeting between the X-Men and the Blob by, by Lee and Kirby. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember one day I was kind of bored, and I said, oh, I'll take a look at this one because it looks kind of cool. The guy's got laser coming out of his eyes, you know? <laughs> I was a little right. kid, okay? You know, just work with me there. Anyway, so I read that, and of course there was pathos. There was all this stuff. Everybody's in love with Jean, but they can't tell her, you know? And, and, and you know, Cyclops was just cool with his with the, 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 the optic blast, you know? And this was so, before Cyclops was a dick. Yeah, you know, long before. <laughs> so so it's like after I finish that book, I'm sitting there and I look at the other one and I go, hey, there's there's Cyclops right there. I don't recognize any of the other people. But previously, when I looked at that, that, that first cover to X-Men 132, which was also one of the gifts, I just looked at it and I didn't recognize anybody there. And there wasn't anything that, that said to me, I need to read this. Even though Byrne had drawn the, drawn the cover, and it's a beautiful cover, it didn't mm-hmm. draw me in because I had nothing to relate to when I was looking at that. And it wasn't until after reading The Amazing Adventures that I said, I need to read this. And I sat down and read it, and oh my God, I was right. sucked in. And of course, you know, the very end of that Wolverine, you know, you're taking your best shot, now it's my turn. And I'm like, oh my God, I got to get the next one. And I searched far and high and low everywhere trying to find that and uh, i mean just running to every little utotem and skillern's drugs and town and country and whatnot because there weren't any comic book shops in my area that were close enough i could get to on my bike at that at that time yeah. let's face it, there were no such things <laughs> as comic shops we were relying on convenience stores and drug stores exactly. and grocery stores to carry our comics at that time and so i um I was with my parents at this crap department store called Gibson's. Hey, hey, hey. Gibson's mom... is a great department store. <laughs> they, were, they were the only ones that, that were open on Sundays when the blue laws said you couldn't sell stuff. They just had it roped off. She could still go into Gibson's. <laughs> well, my uh, my mother was going there to get cheap school clothes for me. Thanks, Mom. And We're on a budget, yeah. sir. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. Anyway, so I was up at the front, and they had a magazine rack, and I saw X-Men's 133, 134, and 135 all right there. How lucky was that? Because I've been searching for months for these. That was like finding a treasure chest beneath the sea. And so I grabbed them up, and I go over there to my mom, and I say, Mom, Mom, i got to get this. And she's like, just one, Brian. I will carry the trash out without complaining for months. <laughs> I think that my case to her was as strong as Mark Anthony's was to the court in uh, Julius Caesar. Because <laughs> she fell on her sword and bought me those books. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Just tell the truth. You gave her doe eyes. You went, but mummy, but mummy. <laughs> yeah, a whole dollar, a whole dollar 20. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. 40 cents, 40 cents, 40 cents. Well, anyway, yeah, so she did get those for me. And then, of course, uh, I never did find uh, 136 for, uh, I don't know, a couple years. I mean, I I found 137 later. And imagine my confusion because I'd never seen Jean in the Marvel Girl costume. So I see Cyclops on the front cover with this stranger. (laughs) Who's this lady? Which I didn't discover, of course, until, you know, 138 when they did the whole recap. Yeah. So it was uh, a... What's that? Oh, I would just say that's funny because when I, I didn't read, I didn't get into comics until I was about eighteen. So I came in about eighty four, 
and I started reading Fantastic Four when he was on it, and I started picking up X-Men. Of course, that's when um, John Romita Jr. was doing the work. But I think from the Fantastic Four issue, and I guess it was before that, I I, I, I knew about the X-Men, and I picked up the trade with that uh, – is it the Sienkiewicz cover? Yeah, uh, yes. yeah. yeah. I picked that one up and I started reading it. And then that's when I started kind of, you know, I was already kind of a burn fan. So I started collecting the issues back then. I'm still, still trying to fill in these. And this was only about a four year, really about a four year um, uh, from when this was out on the newsstand, but it had already become kind of legendary. So from reading current burn, and I would want to go back and I was just grabbing any old burn I could. Um, so I didn't have that. I can just imagine what this must have been like to read this from the newsstand cover, you know, issue to issue instead of reading it in one big, it's torture. um, It was torture. It was, I I had a subscription that started with X-Men One Thirty. So my first unwrapping of a, wow. Of a comic book coming in the mail was X-Men One Thirty, And that John Romita cover with Dazzler and the John Byrne artwork inside was phenomenal. And, uh, this story was like pins and needles. It was it was like watching Game of Thrones today, where you have to wait a whole week to get an episode. We had to wait 30 days. And that was back before there was any social media, so you really had no clue as to what was coming. No, there was no I, way to spoil it. You had to just wait. And you know, if you had friends that wanted to read it, you made them come over to your house and read it, and then they couldn't take it with them. I, I'll tell you what, I would... I, <laughs> When I look back on it, now I would be considered like a really butthole. I don't know if I can say the other word on your podcast. But um, so when I got this in the mail, my I had a friend that was totally into this as well. And I said, I called him on the telephone. And this was something that was attached to a wall back then. And I said, Ooh. hey, I, I <laughs> had a cord. I, exactly. I got Were, were I, you I, poor? I, Huh? <laughs> Were you poor? <laughs> yeah, we just didn't feel like holding bricks to our hands. <laughs> I had got this, and I told him about it, and he's like, oh, my God. And I spoiled the entire issue oh to him. My God. Wow. But apparently he didn't care back then. He wanted to know about it. And then when we got together, he read it, and we were – because I think I had him over to spend the night for the weekend on that Friday night after school. We couldn't wait to read all of our comic books and things. It was great. Now, this is when you reread comics over and over and over oh, until the yes. covers would fall off. That's and, right. And I think people, people forget that because the way the market is today and you go out and you buy all these things and you binge read or whatever. But people forget that, that the ones that we bought when we were – excuse me. The ones that we bought uh-huh. when we were teenagers and even younger, we read over and over and over so much that they've got such stronger – we've got a stronger connection to these right. than anything else that's coming mm-hmm. since. Yeah. Hey, and this cover um, is an as an homage to X Men, the original X Men number fifty six, yeah. with the living monument. Monument. Um, some of the differences are is that the logo is not being crushed in episode or on issue fifty six, but the positioning is pretty much the same, even with the the fallen or defeated X Men below in smaller smaller versions. So. So two two points here. So, uh, Brian, I wouldn't feel bad for those that don't know what uh, uh, Uncanny X Men One Thirty Two looks like. It looks like a Pride and Prejudice uh, mm-hmm. book cover with uh, Sebastian, you know, throwing Storm 
if my memory serves. It's not it's not very dynamic. One thirty one has got the white queen on it, where she's given the the crazed look and and everyone yeah. appears to be in danger. Um, so one thirty two is not the most dynamic, and then I think one thirty was referenced with Dazzler, which is just a great cover. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, disco in all of its glory. Uh, so yeah, it's th- this run has some pretty iconic covers. Are you and, guys hearing uh, this thunder? Yes, heard it. it's okay. cool. Yeah, just, just All right. it's great to set the mood. That's uh yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, one thirty two was not a dynamic cover. It was definitely no. a very <laughs> it was like a splash page more than um than an actual cover. So that would be interesting to find out. Hey, why was this right. choice made for a cover instead of something more dynamic for this? Because one thirty three is Wolverine kicking some serious um, uh-huh. goon butt on on the cover, which is definitely something that's compelling. So, right, and, and it's probably a good time to point out that the Dark Phoenix Saga is readily available in trade paperback form. It's been <laughs> reprinted multiple times, My- in soft cover, hardcover, oversized, you name it. Whatever, pick your pick your flavor of how you want to read it. The soft cover version that I have. It's got the Bill Sienkiewicz cover, but it's in a it's in a panel. This is the fifteenth printing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh yeah, the creators are getting paid on this one. Yeah. Uh, and and so, do you guys consider? Uh, you know, most folks say that this complete set is one twenty nine through one thirty eight. Uh, but there's some debate about that about where it really ends. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, they started all of this back in, I mean, how early did they really start Gene's, I guess 29 is where, where Wingard came in, right? No, 29 is, Sorry, what? 108 is when she becomes Phoenix, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Back when Cochran was still drawing it. Oh, no, 101. 101, yeah. 101? That's 101 iconic is cover. Oh, 101, 108 is when she... Does the M-Cran... Or well, that's when she first hints that she's going to go dark. That's what I was thinking. That That's her biggest use of cosmic power. Yeah, I think the whole time-slipping stuff started probably around 123 or 4. That was when the X-Men were... The X-Men were separated at that point. Half of them had gone into the Savage Land, and Beast and Phoenix had escaped mm-hmm. Savage Land, and so they each each group thought the other was dead. Xavier closed the mansion and then had gone off with Lalandra to space, and uh, Phoenix and Beast had, Beast had returned the Avengers, and Jean had just kind of done her own thing. I think she ended up at Muir Island. Yeah, and that's where – isn't that where Wingard started the seduction? That's- Yes, that's kind of where Wingard started. That's where the X-Men were reunited because somehow they ended up back on Muir Island, and that was where Proteus was introduced. Mm-hmm. During Proteus, we got our really first uh, experience of Wingard taking over her mind and, and shooting her back in, quote-unquote, back in time. And uh, and then 129 is where it really, really started began. The Proteus um, story ended in 128. Yeah, 129 is where the trade paperbacks pick it up. That's where yeah. we're introduced to Kitty and um, uh, Dazzler. Uh, White White Queen goes after Kitty, and the goons go after Dazzler. Uh, and that's that's really where the saga officially picks up. And the other stuff is just kind of those really cool plot threads that Claremont was really good about laying seeds for. Um, 
similar to Paul Levitt's with what he would do is have three or four storylines going. And as one concluded, the next one was elevated up in its, in its um, prominence. Well, well that's sophisticated. Yeah. When you've got his cast as big as the Legion of Superheroes, you have to have that. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and they don't make a big deal out of it. That's, you know, the Chris Claremont or, or, um, you know, some of the, some writers you'd put into that echelon, they're able to drop these breadcrumbs and issues and not call your attention to it or, or make a big deal out of it, but it's laying the groundwork slowly for what's going to come. That, that's and, an interesting point. You know, when we did our very first episode, we covered Avengers 164 through 166, and they introduced uh, Django Maximoff. In mm-hmm. those issues, and that storyline wouldn't hit fruition until the mid one eighties. Yeah, another twenty issues later, and that was Jim Shooter writing the Avengers then. So it, you know, it's like even even he was even dropping the breadcrumbs in in that kind of situation. Though I don't know, it, it, he had a lot of people throwing uh, plot things at him at the time, as I understand it. Yeah. And you know, looking back, I mean, I didn't realize this as an eleven through. Uh, 17, 18 year old at the time because I was just immersed in reading the stories. But now that I look back on it and actually apply some thinking about that stuff, that was one of the things that differentiated Marvel from DC and made Marvel such an interesting storytelling avenue. I'm not saying it's better or worse than DC because back then I, I read both kids. I was not both groups. I was not one or the other. I had favorites in each. Yeah. Uh, but Marvel was definitely really, really adept at and um, creating these in certain books, these little plot threads and things that would that would bring you that would bring you back, want you to know what's going on with the story, character development, and and enjoying the characters. Yeah, Great. DC DC was still in that that mode where you know Superman had you had to do certain things in every book. Steve Lombard had to try and and pull a practical joke on Clark, and Clark had to escape, <laughs> you know, find a way mm-hmm. to trick his way away from Lois. Right. Um, and I mean, that was, of course, you know, the, all the stuff that carried over from Kerry Bates work uh, into that. And even Jim Shooter was writing that for for some uh, a little bit um, when when he was at D.C. after he did Legion. Yeah. Um, and I love that kind of stuff with D.C. I mean, I enjoyed it as much as I did the Marvel stuff. But you like the, Ju- the Justice League comic, which is, you know, their big team comic. They had like a schedule they followed every year. They'd have a three story epic. But they would also have an annual J- JLA JSA team up, and I mean, but they they just worked it like clockwork. There wasn't yeah. you know anything else in, in that. And of course, they bring in new members and take out old members and whatnot. But uh, they they kept things moving. But it was never like this. You're you're right. Well, I think Marvel had a they there they had a more cross pollinization amongst their books, so it felt more like a cohesive world because people would guest start each books, they would reference other people's books in this books. They just sometimes it just be an editor's note, you know, oh if you like this character, read him in this book. And I wasn't reading really reading DC at the time. Uh but I felt that's where that's what drew me into Marvel because they were very uh protective of that continuity, which is what I loved about Marvel and I still do, that it made it all very connected. That a lot of that's lost now because they're not, um, they're not as uh, uh, you know, they're not holding to it as they were. 
it was okay to kind of tell stories outside continuity. So, yeah, that's, a, that's a, a deeper deeper conversation about continuity and the, the pros and cons. Because I, I agree, as someone who read both, um, slightly younger than uh, than you all, uh, you know, that's a curse and a blessing, right? When you're picking up a book, um, feeling like you're missing out. And I, I think DC did do a better job of sticking to the, uh, you know, ever, for someone that comic book is their first comic book. Uh, yeah. Now I will say with this this particular area era of the X Men, uh, I read these and I didn't feel like I was missing out, but I I knew that there was more for me to understand that I didn't get yet, right? Like I didn't understand the depths of the relationships. And why, you know, this was affecting people the way that it was affecting them, because I hadn't read read them. I didn't I didn't understand what had come before. So I think there's 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 fans of both, you know, depending on, on where you fall on that. I as the older I get, the more I like continuity. The younger I was, the more I like just picking up a book and reading it. <laughs> it's funny because um, it was this year right here in 1980 when. Um, DC Comics Presents 26 came out, and that had the insert story of the the all-new Teen Titans, Marv Wolfman and George Perez, uh, before Teen Titans number one came out. And that was DC's turn into that type of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By, by pulling one of Marvel's most you know, well-known writers. and Two of them. Yeah, well, and of course bringing in George Perez as the the that other side of the coin of, you know, that, that, that could do things as well as burn. And I'll, I'll put him right up there next to burn every day of the week and twice on Sundays. I was going to say, Mr. Perez, he's, he's also a legend. Yes. So, right, um, keep us moving through the book here. Well, yeah. yeah. And of course yeah, I was about to say, let's take a look at that first page. And all I see here is a promo for our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, I use this, I use replicated this for our, one of our promos. Because, I mean, this is a fantastic splash page. Yes. I mean, uh, I mean, you can talk about Kirby Croc all you want, but nobody draws, like, radiant energy waves the way Byrne does. Yeah, so for, for folks listening, right, you see the, the X-Men Blackbird is exploding That's on the, the page. Blackbird. That's not the Blackbird. Oh, sorry. My bad. I, I forget where they got that, but that was like an alien thing that they acquired. Isn't it a Shire uh, yeah. vessel? Yeah. I think it's a little... Yeah, shuttle or something. It looks yeah. Shire like. Shire, Shire, <laughs> Shire. Uh, you say Shire, I say Shire. But it's, <laughs> tomato, it's the X-Men, tomato. It's the X-Men Skycraft is, is what yeah, it's called the Skycraft. It, so. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So their Tesla is exploding on the page. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so the whole the Mauler's just exploding. <laughs> right. So it's it, the ship is exploding on the page, and in the explosion, the the energy radiation. You've got the the two words, you know, above and below, Dark Phoenix, as this massive explosion uh, is happening over top of the cityscape. Witness the birth of a god. Right, right. Yeah, that would that's that's an awesome splash page. I I know it it is the simplest of simple splash pages, uh, but I'll tell you when I when I unwrap this thing and got past the cover and opened that up i was just like man because the final well even though the final uh episode or the final panel page of uh 134 is has this has already occurred 
So we're actually going back like three seconds in time. And the last panel has Dark Phoenix, or she calls herself Phoenix, not Dark Phoenix, just standing there in an amazing pose with the uh, the, sh- the Skycraft blowing up. And it was like, what an amazing way to start this book. And she repeated the same thing she did uh, in, was it 111? X-Men, one, uh, not, one, not 111, 101. 101. Where she says, I am fire and life incarnate, now I'm forever, I am Phoenix. Yes. So on the next page... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, so next, top, next, yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, I'll just say the top, the top page where she's kind of throwing them all off. Uh, does anybody get a kind of an Art Adams vibe from that figure, especially the way he, you know, you know, Art Adams used to draw big hair. Yeah, yeah. I, I see what you're talking about. I, I never thought of it before, of course, because this was all before Art Adams. Yeah, but um, yeah, you know, and 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 but for a little bit of sloppy coloring. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing, especially seeing them over New York. You kind of really get the scope of how high up they are. Oh, yeah. They should be dead. Yeah. They should be dead, for sure. And I just just love Colossus going in just, you know, full, let's just go down into the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Nightcrawler provides the comedic relief, right? Ah, not another aircraft destroyed. I I know. (laughs) He's kind of like the uh, the Bull of Petunias. Oh, no, not again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and, and I like Colossus. He's just like, ah, it's not going to harm me. So, hey, here I am. I'm just going to die for it. Um, yeah, and that's what we see on the rest of the page is them, you know, kind of collaborating, even though they're not communicating with each other, but, you know, um, help, just, helping each other survive. I just want to see someone come out from, you know, there after Colossus pulls himself out of the ground and flash a card that says, like, 9.6. <laughs> <laughs> You really stuck the landing there, Peter. <laughs> right. right. He is. He's just going, you know, uh, fist first right into the ground. Well, I think it's interesting. He says he's going to land and possibly catch the others. What makes him think that hitting a armored man is going to be any better than hitting the ground? <laughs> <laughs> There's a flaw in the logic. Yeah, they didn't say he was the brightest. Uh, yeah, Peter's not the uh, – uh, he's the heart of the expert, not the brains. Yeah, and the, and the next page, it, it, together with that one, right, as we see the rest of the you know the X Men um, landing and and you know kind of pulling themselves back back together after surviving the uh, explosion of the ship, and we see Jean coming down to the ground. Um, what what I view is that last panel very rapidly descending on them. You know, she she looks like she's out to finish them off there. Mm-hmm. You notice the storm actually was able to to get some distance between Gene using just the wind. Uh, you know, it's like Gene didn't expect it. Yeah, right. She did get pushed back. And of course the other aspect of it is storm is hold, holding Wolverine up by the very back of his belt. <laughs> exactly. And right. You know, she's got to be seeing plumber there. That'd be horrible. <laughs> I'm sorry. And he's hairy. So maybe not. <laughs> and he's sweaty. An and, and a, yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty tough costume and belt. He's got there. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a nice Canadian Mountaineer belt. Well, adding to that, the weight of Cyclops at probably, what, 190 pounds, you think, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, for a man of his stature and height? Maybe and a little more? A lot, Wolverine's a lot heavier because of the skeleton, too. Yeah, oh, so that's some serious – and for so for Storm to be able to support all that weight in her arm without it getting yanked out of its socket, I mean, that's some pretty serious stuff. Uh, I bet she's got the wind helping. Yeah, his, the wind yeah. is helping. Okay. Uh, All right, no prize. And she's been working out, so there's that. 
But his compositions here of making everyone work together were just really telling a lot of the story that even if you didn't have, I think even if you didn't have the thought bubbles, that you could still understand what's going on. You would still know what's happening um, in this story. Agreed. What yeah, this think, was great, great storytelling. What do you think Jean would have done had she gotten two Cyclops? Would she have just fried them? Because she was, yeah, she was she's, making she's a pretty, for him. Yeah, she's pretty deep in the thrall, but we do see that that's kind of foreshadowing later, right at the end of of uh, 136, where uh, Jean and, and Scott have their confrontation. Mm-hmm. I think at this point... Um, she would have fried them all. I think she's too deep. She uh, she's too much gone over to the dark side. I think with the time kill, she didn't kill any of them. She had the opportunity to. Yeah. And she didn't. Okay. And even when Cyclops and, and Nightcrawler were coming, she just you know hits them with the bolt or whatever, and they go down. And then she says that's it and takes off. Right. I th- I, I agree. I think she's you know mm-hmm. we find out later that that. Uh, I guess the goodness that Jean is is kind of fighting the the Phoenix Force. I think she can't bring herself to to kill him because she I think it would have been easy. She would have just destroyed him when she destroyed the aircraft. Uh, right. You know, she probably might have even subconsciously protected them a little bit. Um, but so I, and then I think when she leaves, uh, which is a maybe, nice, nice nice segue to the next page. Yeah, yeah, but she uh, did solve New York's financial woes in, in all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wonder what I have to that. Did uh, uh, did this disappear the same way the Golden Building in Spider-Man, when the Beyonder turned it into gold? You know, did New York just cart that off too and <laughs> melted it down? I'm pretty sure the Kingpin got a good cut. <laughs> Calling damage control. <laughs> uh, but I think when she's after she zaps them all and still doesn't kill them, I think she is maybe becoming more aware of the vast power she has and more of the cosmos is opening up to her. And that's why she wants to get off. I mean, she's on this little dirt planet and she wants to roam the whole universe. So that's why she takes off and she says, my destiny lies in the stars. And I think that's why she kind of leaves them and uh, splits and decides to stretch her legs. Mm-hmm. And the next, the next page we do see Cyclops. You talked about reference, the New York financial Issue, uh, crisis that's happening at this time in the in the world. The Cyclops thinks he's going to tangle her up in a large uh, tree, which she turns to gold, uh, right? You know, and, and uh, causes Cyclops to lose Colossus. Uh, or sorry, Colossus to lose. Um, she basically turns his ability off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so he's holding this tree, which <laughs> he can't hold, which he can't hold anymore, and you know, then turns it to gold, and it's of course even heavier. Uh, which then collapses on on him and Wolverine, and then we see uh, Storm coming into the fray to try and and save her teammates. This is the page that uh, we were talking before uh, we started recording, where there's there's some dialogue in in some of these older books that's a little cringy, and in the top left panel, right, we we have the the there's a lot of internal dialogue in this book, by the way. So one of the things you don't see a lot of in in uh, modern books is the internal uh, monologuing, or that you know the characters talking to themselves to try and figure out what to do. And this, if you look closely at the word balloons, a lot of them are the uh, X Men talking to themselves. 
mm-hmm. uh, trying to figure out, you know, how, how to stop Jean. Uh, but yeah, the top, top left panel says Jean's enjoying this, using her powers, turning her on, acting like the ultimate physical, emotional stimulant. Uh, I get, you know, this is kind of the, the, the power corrupts absolutely. And she's definitely reveling in her power of the Phoenix. But, uh, I, I, I when I first read that it was just like ee, as as an older man reading it I didn't it didn't bother me when I was a kid but as an older man it's like, eh. well you don't think about it but I think it's pretty for for this being it's a comics code book and it's in the 80s to use the expression turned on is a little look at the very bottom risque. panel uh, yeah storm there's no joy, no love in Dark Phoenix. I, I sense pain, great sadness, and an awful, all-consuming lust. Well, she is supposed to be the embodiment the embodiment of passion, isn't she? Isn't what they say later that she's a fire and passion. Yeah. Um, oh, this, this book definitely has sexual innuendos everywhere, even from just Jean's costume, right? It's very sexy, uh, you know, and not in an overt way. You know, like you would think of today where it's very skimpy and mm-hmm. revealing. It's just it's very form fitting on her and very flattering in the way that it, it hugs, uh, you know, Burns rendition of her, especially with the sash right kind of lower on her uh, waist or the top of the thighs. Yeah, it's it's funny because in the previous issues, when he had her in the whole corset bustier and all that, it made me think of Susan Sarandon in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, but I, you know, I thought maybe that might have actually been the model he worked off of. Maybe. Maybe I'll ask him that. There you go. <laughs> A little safer. Yeah. So there's one thing I noticed about Dark Phoenix, and um, as I flip back and compared it to even the Black Queen, but to Phoenix and Jean, he draws her face uh, quite differently than he does. Um, his other faces of ladies. It's not as round or soft. He definitely hardens it to affect the dark, the darkness of the character, I think. Um, if you look at how that is, it, it all, sometimes it almost looks like it's not even his face, but um, uh, if you find a panel where she and Storm are together, you might notice it a little bit more easy, but um, that just shows me that that John Byrne has really taken a lot of care to differentiate Dark Phoenix from Phoenix yes. and Gene. Oh, yeah. Very much so. This is like, uh, do you remember in Ghostbusters with um, Sigourney Weaver, right, when she's possessed? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she suddenly has very defined cheekbones and, you know, a uh, very chiseled look. That's almost what you have here with Gene is, um, you know, very, uh, you know, chiseled features, strong um, no, but not masculine, you know, because a lot of uh, artists can't draw, uh, you know, a chiseled jaw on a woman and have it still look like a woman. Uh, Byrne does a really good job here of of showing, you know, it's it's almost like a show of strength. But yes. to John's John's point, um, it also creates a clear delineation between when it, when is the phoenix in control and when is Gene in control. There is no Gene. Only <laughs> what a lovely singing voice you have there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Take a couple of these. 
Now, uh, on the next page, we have, well, it's a Sanger Harris man. I mean, this is, <laughs> it looks like a, a fashion spread. <laughs> right. Here we have Robert Redford. And Robert yeah. Shaw. And Robert Shaw, right. Now, is was Robert Kelly supposed to be like Robert Redford? Because, I mean, we know that, that, that you know, um, Shaw was supposed to be Robert Shaw. Leland was supposed to be Orson Welles. And um, Pierce was supposed to be Donald Sutherland, um, that, that, that Byrne used them as the models. But who did he use as a model for Kelly? It's almost like Ted Kennedy. Yeah, probably, I, I think much, much younger. Yeah, Ted Kennedy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, it looks like he could be Reed's uncle, really. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. With the gray, I mean, the gray temples. Well, that's that's how they show old old age in, in comics is gray temples, and I can't really complain a whole lot. I've got gray temples. I, I just don't have any more hair on top. Yeah, well, I do. It's just not as much, but it's still. Blonde. I'm glad I've still got the temples. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, but, I just googled a quick image of Ted, Ted Kennedy from his time, and definitely, if you gave him gray on the sides, it's it's, it's him. Yeah, yeah. But you can see, you know, like like. Kelly's in the the nice three piece suit with the vest. Shaw, of course, is in that. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you call it a hunter's jacket and, and turtleneck. It, it's like a fashion spread almost. And of course, even yes. the police are wearing the, the nice long raincoats and such. But even that, he makes it all look cool. Oh, the, the fashion is on point here for late, you know, late seventies. The eighties are just starting. Like you said, the three piece suit. He's got the the uh, the wide tie. Right, the pinstriped shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, you get right away that he's got money, right? And, and this this says someone who's powerful and has money. And Shaw, right, uh, kicking the. Uh, I, I guess I pictured that as as a, uh, you know, like the fur, the fur coat, right? The, the fur on the inside of the jacket. Mm-hmm. Uh, you the know, turtleneck. Yeah, um, the turtleneck, right? Um, but well, yeah, Burns always, but I always felt always on point with with fashion he's always taking great care to yes. whatever he's drawn uh to be uh it's not the the house style well here's a suit and here's you know the generic dress or or, or how are they going to wear the drawing he he takes great care at making sure his people stand out i think he was a little disappointed though because the way he made that jacket he couldn't show off the fact that shaw's wearing riding pants <laughs> he loves to draw those riding pants. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then of course, I mean, I mean the, they had that conversation about sentinels. Yep. And uh, in that very panel is a very common thing you see Byrne do, where there's someone that's in front of somebody and they're talking to him, and he's got them turning their head like a quarter turn, and they're still talking to the person that's behind them. And if if you look at Byrne's work throughout the years, he does that an awful lot. It's a great, it's it's a great, you know, way to show that, uh, you know, they're they're moving forward. This because what we see in the panels is they're walking, mm-hmm. right? And so Kelly is in front, and uh, yeah, he's got the 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 turn, which almost to me says, if you were talking to like the VP or president of an organization and they they didn't really care too much about what you were saying. Yeah. They're kind of giving you that half side look of like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, what's that? Right. And, and that's yeah. exactly what I got from that. So, yeah, that's a good call. Well, I think Leland is – you get the impression he's thinking about what just Shaw. transpired – or Shaw, sorry. What he's uh, – what just transpired and what 
he's thinking ahead already. Mm-hmm. You know, how he's going to get revenge or how he's going to deal with it or or he's he's and he just kind of barely listening uh to the senator until then the cop shows up of course and says, you know, hey, you know, this is beyond my pay grade. I'm not going over there and taking on the X-Men. Yeah. <laughs> but but that whole conversation, this is the beginning of the 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 idea of Project Wide Awake. Yeah. And so that that plot thread starts and that of course leads into the whole days of future past. Yes, again, uh, laying those seeds. And I like how uh, this is five minutes earlier. So it's right after I think the X-Men have left the mansion. Mm -hmm. And so it's really a great sense of storytelling that to me, it didn't confuse me. It's like I knew it was happening either simultaneously while the fight was happening or as it says, five minutes earlier. So it gives you that bit of uh, background in there of what's happening and and planting those seeds for future for a future story that we're like wow okay because days of future past is a great story as well now let me ask you though the the fireworks that are going off in the park before gene blows up there is that storm throwing something else out or is that just gene you know raising an intensity before she becomes the does the phoenix effect I, I think, think it's Gene. And do you guys see Darth Vader's face in that? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Okay. Just well, just I could. Me. Yeah. Wait, how many drinks are we supposed to have into the podcast at this point? <laughs> I've only had one, but it was really big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like, well, I only have one a night. Well, well, how big? 56 ounces. <laughs> I think this is, this is when Storm was uh, blasting Gene with, with lightning, and that's what they're saying. But then the next panel you get that is when she's leaving yeah. Earth. That's when you see that phoenix. Yeah. So. Well, and Shaw says, right, Storm's the weather witch. This is her kind of stunt. But what's the point? The bolts are building an intensity. So I think this is Jean's power radiating, right? Yeah. Like it's yeah, just... I, th- I think that's what it, I think that's that's it. And she's leaving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just before it becomes the phoenix effect, it just it seems to make sense. And then, of course, you see them, the tiny little guys down there at the bottom, just to give you that kind of scale. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think Massive. between the two panels, it, it takes place. I think we're, what, what we're watching on the final panel on the bottom of the page on the left, where they first notice that, is the entire battle. They're watching it. And then Phoenix rises and, and heads off into the stars when we turn the page. So I think there's a lot going on in the in the alley there that 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 they don't need to access because that was the first, what, four pages that we've yeah. seen. Right. Nice transition. Then the next page we see, uh, uh, yeah, right. We've got, you know, Gene is leaving and here we have, uh, Mr. Fantastic, the thing, Spider-Man, uh, Dr. Strange, Silver Surfer, right. All sensing in their own different ways, uh, whether it's the instruments or their abilities, right. That something big has happened. And this ties it into the rest of the Marvel connection. And that's just that's just one of the great one of the things of greatness that you find in a book like this is when it can sit there and tap all that, and you just don't think anything of it. You think, yeah, this is the way the Marvel universe is, how it works. I think if they what would be even nicer if you'd had one more panel. I know we have the Silver Surfer, but if you had one more panel of Galactus sensing something, that would have given it mm. a bigger scope. Mm. That, wow. Yeah. Uh, that it's really her, you know, her her power is off the chart. 
Now, what is the book that is strange? Is that Book of Spells or Book of Hells? Or I, I tried Kells. pulling it up. What? Book of I think it's the Book of Kells. Kells. Uh, it's an ah. Irish book. Ah, Kell surprise. I thought that panel, the text of his inner dialogue in that uh, panel is great, right? I sense images of great mystic power, great passion, great evil. But what meaning do they have for Doctor Strange? Does he always talk about himself in the third person? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're putting that in there, right, for someone who maybe isn't familiar with that character, right? But it just, it seemed odd to me. Well, the surface is the same thing. He says, a child of the stars, so like the Silver Surfer, and yet not like me at all. Right. Again, kind of that third person detached. This is supposed to lead into another story with him, but it never happened, as I understand. With the surfer? Yeah, um, I was reading a note on the Marvel Wiki that said the Silver Surfer's cameo in this issue is going to be expanded into a full story by John Byrne and Terry Austin. Oh, that's an epic, right? For the 25th issue of X-Men, The Hidden Years. However, the series is canceled with with issue 22. Wow. That would have been interesting. Damn you, (laughs) Quesada! Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You can't say that. Curse you, Casada. That was something I actually read on uh, Burn Robotics recently. That you know, the dealing with the Comic Code Authority and dealing with editors is is always been difficult. Where Burn, where well, there was one point where Burn, you know, basically worked really hard with his editor to make Sue say "Damn you, Doom," and at the last minute, the editor changed it to read "Curse you, Doom." And without saying anything to burn. And it's just one of those, like, why did they have to change that line? And who actually says, curse you? Uh, I do all dramatic, you do. Yeah. Yeah, like, uh, you know, when you go through the drive-thru and you ask for, you know, no cheese on your sandwich and you find cheese when you start pulling away. You curse you, drive-thru person. You'll rue the day. Right. You messed with me. Uh, Last comment on this page. Uh, I love how Byrne, inc- you know, uh, includes right the uh, the heels there. So Gene is doing all of this destruction in heels. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and of course, lovely Kirby Crackle there, uh, you know, behind her and underneath her as she's taken off. It's just oh, she's terrifying, right? The yeah. whited out eyes, you know, the 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 smile right okay. that, that, that evil I, smile i've noticed this a couple times not just in this but in a couple of the commissions that he's done of dark phoenix but the face there reminds me of leonard hostetler's mother on big bang theory oh you're so funny that <laughs> was hilarious <laughs> christine baranski yes <laughs> wow and, and cheeks a little not bit more to... sunken but that's you know still to keep keep uh praise here on this particular panel but you know, Byrne is one of the few artists that can draw hair extremely well. I mean, you really can tell here where her her locks are just flowing right behind her, and they actually it actually looks like you know flowing red hair, mm-hmm. you know layers of red hair, and not just a mass you know of color with a few you know slashes or hash marks in it. Because yeah, that's extra work for him to do that. Yeah. yeah, I remember he was talking about um, in Marvel team up with Tigra, or Tigra. I don't know what that which 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 way they go, where 
he uh, wanted to make sure the inker knew exactly how he wanted the hair done, so he inked one of the pages himself to show up. But the inker was not able to uh, do it up to, to anywhere near what Byrne had done. So if That's, you look at uh, that, that issue of, of Marble Team-Up, see if you can figure out which page he inked. Yeah, it would be a tough act to follow. Um, so next page, we've got Gene soaring through the uh, the cosmos there, zipping past Beast, uh, or I should say getting ready to go off into uh, uh, the cosmos, zips past Beast in the, the Quinjet. Uh, Beast goes down to find his, his uh, uh, former teammates, right, beaten, um, and offers his assistance. And there we see the golden tree again in the how much do you think that tree weighed there? It weighs too much for Beast to pick up, I think. Yeah, I would think I would have thought that too. I remember in in X Factor they made Beast a lot stronger. I mean, almost class one hundred strength. But yeah, here I only thought he was able to lift about a thousand pounds or so. I thought Ohatmu had him at about two tons. Two tons? Okay. Yeah, but that 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 tree is weighing about fifty tons. It's solid right. gold. At least he's using his knees. He's lifting properly. <laughs> he has got proper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I could just see that around the X Mansion, right? Of a whole bunch of those, uh, you know, proper lifting technique posters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never know when you'll need to lift a giant golden tree off your teammates. Uh, the next page here, we, uh, you know, kind of have the uh, check in, right, on. The other players in our story, we've got uh, Angel and Professor X. And they're Skyping uh, with Moira. They are Skyping. FaceTiming. <laughs> right. FaceTiming, excuse me. Their future tech there. Uh, one of the, the little details here on this page is in the last panel that I really like is Professor Xavier's sweater. Right, he uh, Byrne gave it a little bit of uh, you know, like you know texture to it. Yeah. So you can tell oh, like, yeah. like a fluffy That's sweater. Really cool. Well, it's cold in Scotland. Well, they're not in Scotland, kid, are they? As a kid, looking at Angel going, man, his legs are funky. And, you know, as an adult, my legs are just like that now. <laughs> Super toned and defined, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Actually, okay. yes. <laughs> That's too bad. My legs look more like Professor X's. <laughs> oh, it goes down to medication. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, on the next page is where I think Byrne really excelled with the genes uh, totally gone at this point. Um, yeah. That first panel where she we, we, we pick back up with Jean and uh, she's soaring through space. I, I mean, there is no better image to you know, that you could expect or ask for of just she's consumed with like just rage and you know, demented levels of, you know, uh, desire. I mean, she, I mean, she looks terrifying. Yes. And, and I love the, the, just again, everything he's done in, in that panel, when you see, you see the rest of the cosmos there mm -hmm. and, and the, she, she's getting close to, I guess, the photosphere of the, of the sun and all that. And then as you look down in the other panel with star core, and I just want to know, why does anybody put a satellite, or whatever that close to the sun it's got to be freaking hot in there <laughs> it's very sweaty very sweaty i know but i mean you could go anywhere in space why there i, I mean, think they're studying the sun or something aren't they 
if yeah. it's, it is StarCore 1, 1, that means that there's going to be another one. <laughs> it is a little ridiculously close. Yeah, it, it, and it's on Sunwatch. Okay, you can do that from a little further away. <laughs> exactly. Okay, they they must have incredible radiation shielding. Yeah, because they, be they don't even look like they're sweating, and they're wearing long sleeves, too, and gloves. And <laughs> well, it's got cold. the AC turned up, you know? It's got to stay cold on there. <laughs> well, they're, they're on the dark side of StarCorp. <laughs> well, I, I got a kick out of rereading this because, you know, there are certain tropes that get stuck in your head, you know, or, mm-hmm. or, or sayings in, uh, you know, the old Justice League cartoon, right? As soon as I got to that panel, right, with the meanwhile, I heard, meanwhile, <laughs> or StarCorp 1. Here, Ted Baxter. Right. Chuckles the Clown is dead. Oh my god. (laughs) Well, at this time, Skylab was still in orbit, right? I believe it was. It was still. And it it was launched in the mid 70s, so I think that's the way it's designed. I think it's kind of a reference to to Star Lab, but, uh, you know, you can imagine these guys, like, during the mission briefing, okay, we're going to send you up uh, to study the sun. Okay, from Earth orbit? Yeah, yeah, sure. And they just keep. (laughs) Yeah. Wait a minute, we're not stopping. How can we keep going? I want yeah. you to examine the sun with your eyes. That's right. I'm uh, <laughs> Take a sample. Uh, moving to the next page, because um, basically all the, the the only purpose they serve, right, is to say, you know, something went by that was very small, incredibly powerful, right? And it's yeah. uh, building the drama. Yeah. Yeah. But the, so top next, the, the top of this oh. next page, I'm sorry, you know, because it, it, this uh, right here brought up a whole bunch of thoughts as I was rereading this. And I'm, I'm go, go ahead and you guys get your thoughts out. I'm sure you're going to mirror what I'm thinking. I'm sorry, John, I'm just, I, I cut you off there, didn't I? <laughs> no, I'm just thinking Ditko, early Kirby, space. I mean, it's just such a, um, a callback to those those cool things that Ditko would do for Doctor Strange or... Kirby would do when the Fantastic Four would actually go into space to, to uh, battle Galactus or or things like that. It was for it, a small portion yeah, of page. It's really cool. It even made me think of Starenko a little bit. Oh yeah, Starenko, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But it also just the other night made me think of Star Trek Discovery in the last episode of the second season. Every time that they did one of the little jumps, I don't know if any of you saw that. I have. Spoiler yeah. alert. That doesn't. What? That didn't give away anything. That's not spoiling anything. The, the discovery jumps. She and Spock have a baby. <gasps> Just kidding. How could you? <laughs> Just kidding. But it also, I love this uh, little caption in it. Uh, into a galaxy far, far away. Mm-hmm. Now, I, my my question here is, of all the galaxies to go to, though, I mean, she purposely went to a galaxy far, far away. She went to a galaxy. That that houses the Shire Empire, right? That's do not Tim. speak. Do not That's... speak ill of Jean Grey. <laughs> <laughs> That's there. That's in my house. Um, well, I got a question. Why does she need to one uh, slingshot around the sun if she's got? I mean, she's kind of infinite power uh, to create a wormhole to uh, or a warp, whatever they're calling it, a, a stargate. Uh, stargate. Um, Jump gate to great show. Head, by the way. Just she had to just get up to, to 88 miles an hour. <laughs> an hour. <laughs> you beat me to it. Exactly. <laughs> You're gonna see some serious stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, 
But I, I was going to say, for the fact that he's not really using this is not a nine panel grid, but he's not doing a lot of large, you know, like splash pages, but he still conveys space in that this is very um, vast. Vast, and it's 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 not you know what they later would term widescreen comics. Uh, it's very cinematic. You can just um, imagine this being done, uh, you know, with a huge CGI budget. Right. Yeah. Well, and 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 intentional or not, uh, if you look at the top right hand corner, I thought that looks like a skull to me. That blue and purple in the top right panel mm. almost looks like a skull. You know, little. To me, was a little oh, foreshadowing. Yeah. Which page are you talking about? Where she's going through the warp? Yeah, yeah the, the Stargate. Oh, okay. It looks like a skull, you know, like an open mouth. It's like she's facing death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An or bringing it. Man. Yeah. And we're bringing it, and and that's what yeah. we see here on this page is she goes through the Stargate. She's zipping through. She finds the sun that she's going to feast on to refill her power, and we do get a nice, albeit very small, panel where. Uh, she she's put back into context again, right? She's just a person, and you see this little body basically floating down or falling down into the sun uh, to it consume. Looks like it's it. falling the way the way they yeah yeah, yeah. It does really <laughs> mm-hmm. to consume it, and then we have the poor people in the bottom panel, um, you know, which man you feel you feel even their, their anguish, even though. These, these folks only get one panel, like, uh, you know, kind of like killed off screen. Do you they get one panel, them? right? <laughs> no. do, do you recognize them? I don't. They look awfully familiar, but I'm, I'm drawn. Avengers uh, I, issue number four, when Captain America first appeared in the modern age. Wow. The alien that had that spaceship was one of them. Oh, interesting. They, they, we referred to him as the asparagus people, but no, that's him. Hmm. Interesting. That's so callous because all the asparagus people are dead now, <laughs> and that's what we see to take place. Um, there's a, a huge um, burst of light. The people on the planet, right, are are cowering in fear because they don't understand. Um, although there is mention here that some of the the uh, enlightened folks, right, the scientists on the planet, have a moment and i just snap my fingers because they have a moment to realize what's happened and we see the the planet be obliterated and the note here is that um you know that she doomed that entire habited planet which was five billion people she just wiped out yeah and they didn't know it for 10 minutes it's like she's trying to get into the nexus That whole imagery of the of the wave hitting the planet mm-hmm. and just the planet getting blasted is just, I mean, it is devastating to sit there and, and think about that because you, you can't help, especially with the narration there, think about the people dying in all those various ways. It, 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 any compassionate mind go, has to go through a little bit of turmoil reading that. Yeah, and, the, and you know, the... The text here, right, one of the boxes says, um, those few awake on the night side are treated to a spectacular, once-in-a-lifetime aurora borealis before death claims them. But half the world dies in its sleep. They are the lucky ones. Um, I thought here in the next panel, uh, it says, uh, 
And in the center of the supernova, she created Dark Phoenix thrills to the absolute power that is hers. She is an ecstasy. Yet she knows that this is only the beginning, that what she feels now is nothing. And that's bolded compared to what she experienced with the great Macron crystal. It almost is like a, uh, like a drug addict, right? So she's, as she's consuming this sun and taking this energy in, She's almost like thinking about her next high. Yeah, right? she's, getting like, a rush. she's getting a rush from this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, but it, it kind of doesn't make sense to me. And But I'll get into it at the end. Well, I always thought if she's consuming this energy, then wouldn't she absorb it so that, sure, the planet would die anyway because the sun would disappear. But if it went supernova, wouldn't she suck all that energy up? Not all of it. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking a lot of energy. And she's all, and, and she's already got limitations. She's already said she's got limitations. They're starting to go away, but she's only going to be able to absorb so much, and so much of near infinity is still infinity. Oh yeah, but she's 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 more akin to a uh, uh, a cosmic uh, force like Galactus yeah. uh, or anything else. She's having to feed. But you know, at some point, Galactus has to come across the planet and look at it and go, uh, "Nah, I need a diet." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not, not going to do it. Maybe I'll just go for that moon over there. Yeah, there, that was actually an issue where he came across the whole planet. They were all wearing MAGA hats, and he just left. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't need to eat that garbage. Uh, it, but, but it does make this comment. She'll pay any price to achieve yeah. it once more. There's something wrong in that in that dialogue. And like I said, I'll get into it later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, we get the direct um, link to Star Trek The Motion Picture. Oh, with the Klingon vessel here? <laughs> yeah, because give me tactical. Wasn't that the very first line from the Star Trek, the motion picture? Well, he shouts, he shouts tactical. Tactical, okay. So yeah. Yes, tactical. I, I thought right away that this looked to me like a, like a, some kind of hybrid Romulan-Klingon vessel. Yeah, you bottom right. a bird race would come up with a little bit more bird-like <laughs> vessel. <laughs> That's birdism, and we don't tolerate that on this oh. podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, at <laughs> least now we know where the um, the Canadian Prime Minister gets his video screens from. Because if you look on the next page, they got one almost as big as his. Right. <laughs> well, it looks like the controls, the control, the main bridge from the Cygnus. Which this this whole so we're, we're moving on to the next page. With, yeah, you know, sorry. The, the, yeah, the panel shows the Shi'ar ship. Right, they witness this event. Um, you know, this horror unfolding, and then the next page shows them, right, in what has to be, like, the worst designed bridge of all time. <laughs> you oh, said like, the Cygnus. What's the Cygnus? I'm, I'm from blanking. Black Hole. I still haven't watched that. What? Mm-hmm. Oh. I've been now the podcast high, has got to stop. I, no, no, I, I want to get it in high def, <laughs> and it's now available in high def. I just need to sit down and watch it. You need to watch it. It's pretty good. So we see... Uh, the Shi'ar uh, seeing, you know, on the monitor. Um, yeah, this is definitely like a like a 150 inch flat screen there, because it couldn't be glass, or maybe maybe it is glass. Maybe it is. Uh, so they they of course decide they gotta contact home base. Uh, as they watch the the star start to collapse, they we see Gene come out of it course they lose their proverbial minds uh and then uh moving on 
to the next page. Um, this is where Jean uh, starts to interact with the ship. <laughs> well, it's funny. This this creature has just destroyed an entire star, and they think I'm going to shoot at yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the his his second or does say is that wise. He's like, yes. Hey guys, it's Brian. Uh, yeah, my power went out, and so I switched over. To... Here we go while we're waiting for Brian. Oh, hey. <laughs> anyway, your podcast is important to us. Please hold. Please, please hold, yes. Yeah, for the next available host. Please hold while we retrieve your host. Yeah. Uh, now it's, his icon's gone, so he must be trying to to uh, dial back in. But let's finish the book without him. Sorry, Brian. Okay. That's <laughs> more to go with you, him through. Yeah. You, you were voted yes. off the podcast. So much for no man left behind. <laughs> <laughs> just pulled the gun out and shot him. Well, let's keep moving, guys. And what, what was that one hostess name? You are the weakest link. Goodbye. That's right. Uh, oh, who was that? And something or other. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> we'll get back with Brian when he joins us. Yes. And, and join us again. He'll so we are us. just... Um, the Shi'ar have decided... <laughs> yeah, to engage. <laughs> Jobs and Phoenix, who just destroyed a star. Yeah, which is probably the worst possible time, right? They could have... Uh, attacked her after she's just you know recharged, so she's she's you know topped up uh, power wise, and uh, yeah they shoot their little ray gun at her, um, and she even says whoever you are you've just made a big mistake <laughs> exactly <laughs> scratch one nacelle <laughs> right this had a very Which... next gen vibe to me this felt like a like a next gen episode just with them in space and. Yeah, which, you know, we, we made the comment earlier about, you know, how how much influence is Jean exerting here? Um, because she right even says, I've crippled them. Now to mind scan the vessel and find out what I'm facing. Why does she even care? Yeah, I mean, she just why destroyed a star. Care? Yeah, why did she... Yeah, they're, no, they're nothing to her. Right? I mean, she could easily have just obliterated them. Yeah. But it, this, it, it does show that uh, if you if you go back to where the Silver Surfer first senses her, he says, uh, you know, he senses all this vast power, but says she's human, she's flawed, and that could be her her downfall, because she's acting uh, with anger and rage, and she should be at this level above that, and they 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 should be like these are so insignificant, they're not you're below, you're beneath my notice. But she's being kind of petty and, and like, well, you shoot at me, I'm going to destroy you. So right. she's not dealing with her. And maybe that's um, the influence. Maybe I'm, I'm not if I'm correct this or not, but when they decide this whole Phoenix Force thing, when later on they kind of retcon some of this stuff, right. isn't this supposed to be the first time that the Phoenix Force is bonded with a human or a, a humanoid? Yes. Yes. Because so. it was so enthralled with Gene. Mm-hmm. In all of time and space, she was the one. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, and and maybe it's pointing more to the fact that some of the things that she's doing are illogical. You know, she didn't have to consume a star right next to a planet of five billion mm-hmm. people. 
I'm sure there were plenty in the in the uh, the universe that she could have consumed that would not have obliterated a planet. Uh, same with the ship here, right? What, you know, she says a plasma bolt, someone shooting at me. Yeah, I, I would think that she wouldn't uh, wouldn't have even noticed because right? she's off to the next thing. Yeah. Uh, but these guys knew they were doomed anyway from the beginning because the uh, first officer says, uh, we're lucky to be alive, Juber, or Jubber. <laughs> That's a terrible name. You know they're going to die. They might as well just put all these guys in red shirts. They do have a pretty pretty wicked eyeliner, though. Yeah, I don't know if that was supposed to be eyeliner, those are tattoos, or if that's just their natural markings. Hey, guys. Oh, hey. It wasn't He's coming alive. back up, but it, uh, it finally did. So, uh, well, we finished the book, sorry. Oh. Well, we, already, we just finished the book. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we already covered 136 also. Yeah, yeah, we finished all of them. Yep. <laughs> that doesn't sound very entertaining. Oh, <laughs> not without you, Brian. Oh, thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. So where are we? Are we still on... Um... We're just about to discuss Lilandra in bed. Yes. A. Yeah, she yeah. is. <laughs> she's, and she's got... <laughs> Telly Savalas is ringing her up on her crystal ball. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so is that a holopathic matrix crystal just like they give to Jean later? I mean, Jean's parents? That must be... Uh, I would think so. Hmm. My Lord Chamberlain, what's the matter? I'm sure. I'm sure that's how how everyone would react. Uh, yeah. So we go. For, so yeah. So now the home. They've alerted the home world. They've sent communication back that they need an instant link with uh, Imperial Center, uh, and that it has absolute priority. Uh, they have to speak with the Empress. She's awoken in her uh, bed chamber, and they uh, they sprint down to the uh, main communications room where we see. Uh, Gene Simmons and co. are uh, looking out the, the window there at the Phoenix, full-on flame bird coming at him. You know, I, I just had a flash of that top panel where Lalandra and uh, uh, the Imperial guy is uh, racing, and she's like, Uber is one of my best trains. I trained him myself. If he's using the Instalink, and I'm just all of a sudden had this flash, to the bat phone! <laughs> But I, I was sitting there wondering about that line. I trained him myself. I mean, how was she training pilots before the whole incident with with the Ken and, and all that? Because it you seemed know, she, like only very recently that she actually went back and took the throne. Well, I think if you follow like what typical protocol, royal protocol is. I mean, look at um, uh, Queen Elizabeth served in the royal army mm -hmm. during the war. Prince and uh, Prince. Um, William and Harry have both served. Yes. Uh, so they all serve with their fellow people. I mean, they get the best of the best, but they do actually serve. And uh, so probably as one of the royal house, she and Deken more than likely served amongst the people as well. At least this is what I always am, uh, assumed it would be. So she probably was one of the better trained warriors uh, and her sister Deathbird, you know, um, to train other people. That's, so it's possible. Now, why didn't they? I mean, Guardian was right there too, wasn't he? Or is he? Uh, we haven't. No, 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 we don't see. We him haven't yet. seen we Guardian see yet. Because it she makes sense why, why he wasn't dispatched right away. But um, I do like, you know, of course the 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 white and black um, panel. Yeah. That mm. just, you know, gives that whole thing. But I mean, of course, the Phoenix effect itself um, does make me think a little bit of Battle of the Planets. 
Yes. I mean, not in a bad way. And of course, well, we, we, we have to mention, though, in that top panel, she's got some amazing legs yes. as she's running to the... <laughs> <laughs> that robe, uh, um, her, so her leg is outstretched, you know, perfectly straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a typical... Uh, he, we, yeah. he used to draw a She-Hulk like that all the time, that long stride. Or right. all, any woman, Maggie Sawyer or yeah. Lois Lane... And you're usually in a tight mini skirt. Found a way to do that, and it was always stretching the skirt to its ultimate depth. Yeah, and how was he keeping up with his bow staff there, hobbling behind her? She would be like uh, leagues ahead of him. But uh, yeah, so there is one comical part here where, as we see uh, uh, Gene Simmons about to die, says uh, he says, "Leandra, can you see it? No, I miss the giant flaming bird." coming in on your view screen there but uh it, it does the next panel makes up for that kind of ridiculous you know can you see it um with the obliteration of their ship and it's just shown as you know pure light it's just mm-hmm. white and the characters are in in silhouette um you know just showing the, the awesome power and, that and has check helped. out phoenix's message farewell lalandra mm-hmm I mean, she knows who she... Oh. She, yeah, no, that's, that's, the the captain. that's the captain. That's Juber. Oh, oh, Juber. you think so? Yeah. Oh, I figured because it was so jagged and stuff that it was uh, and yellow that it was Phoenix's words. Yeah, I always thought that's that was the captain. Dying. That's like, yeah, yeah, his last, his last, um, as it goes out, as yeah. the oh, communication okay. goes out. figure out how you'd actually pronounce that with the accent over the E. Would it be Uber? Probably, but I like, uh... Juber. I like Juber better. Yeah, Juber. <laughs> the long-distant relative of Goober. That's right. <laughs> well, he did shoot at the Phoenix. I was going to ask if the guy down at the bottom, the old guy, is it Rocky, does he look like an older version of Joff? Oh, you mean the Imperial Guard? The, the, no, the old guy next to Lalandra. In the yeah, the guy panel. The guy in the Imperial Guard to go, that little... The yeah, little yeah. Well, he was yeah. The, yeah, one of the guards of the, uh, the Mkron Crystal. He yeah. does. You're right. I thought he looked like High Father with a different haircut. He does look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, back in the control panel, where where we're seeing the big Phoenix um, image, mm-hmm. the two robots. One of them is speaking something. I think it's either a robot or an alien. The the robot that's in front of him, that's kind of on all fours. Doesn't it look a little bit like War Star? Yeah, I was thinking that yeah. Benny and Cecil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the other one is saying, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you think that screen would have auto-dim on it or something? Cause, you know. <laughs> yeah, they're all blind now. Uh, and then this brings us to the last issue, or last page of the issue. Um, the, uh, the X-Men are um, uh, sitting, you know, kind of uh, licking their wounds back at the mansion with Beast. So we have Beast, Nightcrawler, Storm, Cyclops, uh, Wolverine, and they're uh, uh, having their Nest Cafe. And, uh, Bruce King. <laughs> right? And uh, we have Cyclops here, um, you know, scream out, you know, it's Phoenix. I can sense her in my mind through the psionic uh, rapport we share. She's returning to Earth, and she's hungry uh, with a look of terror um, in his eyes. Uh, as well as the rest, and we get the the title of the 
next book, which is Child of Light and Darkness. Yeah. What do you think she, uh, before, you know, we're not going to cover the next book yet, but what do you think she came back? It's almost like she went out to get something to eat and came back. Well, you know, that, she... that's, that was my, my complaint in the first place. You know, going back to a couple pages, you know, she's sitting there focused on the Amcron Crystal. That's why she went to the Shire Galaxy. She goes there, she eats a planet, she destroys one of those ships, and then all of a sudden she's like, uh, you know, I need to go go back to Earth for some reason. It doesn't make sense why she needs to go back there instead of she's going to do the Emcron. Unless all of a sudden she thought to herself, yeah, the X-Men are going to miracle them the way, miracle the way across the universe to stop me. Well, I kind of thought about it like this, and here I'm, what, almost 40 years later, 39 years yeah. later after this, so this never occurred to me, but given what's happened since, which is the retconning of this being a Phoenix Force inhabiting her, um, I don't think that was... She wasn't written as that at this point, I don't believe, even though an article I read, uh, Byrne and Claremont tried to justify the the thing by saying, oh, yeah, we left clues that it really wasn't Jean. It was she was being influenced by something, but they didn't really make that clear in the story. Uh, so I think that when she made that first jump, she was just trying to get away just to get away. And she didn't have control of her power, so she created that space warp and she ended up in the Dabari system by accident consumed it huh did they in one panel they they said Dabari and then they say Badari oh no I didn't <laughs> notice that I'm just glad I didn't say Debarge because while I was reading this I did say that in my head a few times can you feel the rhythm of the night <laughs> that's right uh, so I think that was just kind of happenstance that she ended up I don't think she intended to consume a planet or a star with a planet of people and it just and the Shi'ar Empire Earth is in the Shi'ar Empire territory actually so uh, I, I, I believe if that was correct at that time or, or it was on the border between the scroll and the Kree and the Shi'ar Empire so Earth is kind of in that massive thing she just happened to be in the in there then after she consumed it that's when remember how it was talking about how oh she was in ecstasy the only thing that made it better was the Emkron and that's when she started thinking about the Emkron but I think she went back to Earth because that's when Jean is trying to – she still has that emotional link to Earth. So I think it was maybe Jean kind of bringing her back to Earth to recenter around what she knows best, which is her family, the X-Men. That's all I can well, think. Well, yeah, I agree with that. I think it's her – it's possibly her link with Scott that's drawing her back, yeah. uh, her rapport mm-hmm. that uh, – yeah. Uh, and that and that's that's probably the case there. I mean, that would be the the best reason to state in there. You know, if you want to know prize it or whatever. What what I uh, I sitting there and I was looking back and it was on it was on the page you guys covered while I got cut off from my power, but it was uh, the captain of the of the starship that says, "It is necessary." Badari was an ally of the Empire, <laughs> so I mean, he just mispronounced it. That's all it was. You know, well, he's you know, he's he's under stress. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he is Goober. Yeah, he just had his <laughs> yeah. he just had his cell destroyed and right. uh, taking a pot shot at you know flaming woman. So as you do, as you do. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is this is a classic case of you can read into this book as much as or as little as you want. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I, when I read this the uh, you know the fifteenth time, um, I thought uh, as you guys did that Gene was getting. Um, 
Phoenix away from the X-Men because as we've discussed before, she, she could easily have destroyed them. Yes. And there's no, there really isn't any good or good reason why she didn't just consume our own son. Right. <laughs> if she was that hungry, it's right there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I but, mean, it, it, it falls into that same thing. She didn't kill the X-Men. Yeah. She could have easily right then and there. She, she could have, she didn't destroy the earth. She didn't eat the sun. She definitely still has that emotional tie and that's the only reason why she would be returning back to Earth, either to end it or because the part of her that's still Jean is fighting her and made her yep. go there. And spoilers for the beginning of 136, it kind of explains when she goes to her parents' house. Next time. <laughs> or as Andrew would say, next time. Yeah. But just real quick, I, I really love just the little bits of character on this page. Here... It, here they have no idea what's happening to Jean. They don't. Well, they kind of know what's going on in space, or else Scott is kind of just thinking. But you know, they're like, "What the f just happened?" And I mean, Nightcrawler and Beast are just hanging out on the counter, drinking their coffee, like we mentioned earlier. Uh, Wolverine's like, "Whatever, I need a brew." Yep. You know, um, and the it's old just pull tab. By the way, the old pull tab top. Yeah, you notice yeah. that Nightcrawler and Beast are basically sitting in the same position. It was almost like see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. But yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> well, I was thinking is get your dirty feet off the counter. Yeah, People put food yeah there, exactly. You know, <laughs> sit in a gross, chair. Gross beast. Or beast worse. hair all over everything. Yeah, and not only just hair, but butt hair. I mean, look at yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> now, from what we can see, Nightcrawler and Beast both have uh, coffee Colossus probably has coffee or tea, but Storm is drinking out of a glass, so it's mm -hmm. like she just has water or something. She or fills that herself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or it's vodka. Yeah, it could. Yeah. <laughs> if I yeah, if it was me, that'd be uh, yeah, straight liquor. And and Scott's had a plate of sandwiches and a cup yeah. of coffee. I mean, if you look on the table there. So now we know he's an emotional eater. Yes. Well, it doesn't look like the food's actually been touched. So someone put that down there for him, but he's been such a funk. It says, ever since we returned from New York, Scott's just sat there, not eating, not speaking. Oh. Well, they and did then, give him it, what looks like plain white bread cheese sandwich. Like, he's taking this very hard. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, even yeah. he's been answering phone calls all night. No, that wasn't us. No, we weren't. You know, we weren't. And... Uh, Central Park, you know, everybody, all the superheroes are calling up. What the hell happened? X who? X who? That's right. That's right. No, we've been inside the whole time. <laughs> so. we, we've got verification. But this is, yeah. a, uh, I think this is another great cliffhanger because you're, you know, that this issue is kind of to set up, it, it, it demonstrates her power. Shows how powerful she is. And plus it, it brings in the Shiars so that it, you know, the next two issues, or the big double size issue, will uh, uh, explains their their presence. Uh, so it's really kind of a showcase. You know, she's going to yeah. go out, she's going to do some stuff, just show how powerful she is. She's going to come back, and then we're going to have, you know, the um, the next because the next issue is a little, uh, you know, it's a little more emotional. She goes, she's spending time with her family. Then we have the big fight at the end, and the <laughs> don't give anything away. Well, spoilers for a forty year old book. Though, it, reading this one and, and getting to this and this is Child of Light and Darkness I, yep. I, I was so convinced 
the next issue is going to be the last issue in the story. Oh, I was too. And and you know it it it's almost got that that Return of the King six ending kind of thing <laughs> when you think about it. But um, yeah, it 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 like every one before it had a cliffhanger. You know, we had in in one thirty two Wolverine. You know, you take your best shot. You've taken your best shot. Now it's my turn. One thirty three. It was Cyclops is dead. Mm-hmm. And of course, we find out next month. No, he's not. He he's getting back up. He's and, mostly dead. But I mean, still, that was that was like <laughs> holy crap! You don't you don't look dead. <laughs> I got better. I'm not dead yet. Yeah. And the end of that, of course, is Dark Phoenix. And then the end of this is, you know, she's coming back, and it says Child of Light and Darkness, and you're just like, oh no, this is the end. And of course, you know, for me initially i didn't even read child of light and darkness i went straight to 137 because i couldn't find it yeah you poor child oh that's well, that's fine i would usually stop this if i was reading this as trade i was reading the trade and when i would reread it i would sometimes stop after uh she becomes dark phoenix and takes off because it's if you read it in one sitting you're kind of emotionally drained it's a roller coaster so they when they finally finish the stuff for the hellfire club that sometimes I wouldn't go on and read these other two issues. Mm-hmm. No, I mean... I, I didn't feel compelled to read them as all one one run. Oh, I, I see. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's how one, I roll. One thing to consider this is in context of the time. Uh, so we're at six issues of a specific continued story. This was really probably one of the first long-term... Uh, story arcs that I can think of. We've had a couple, you know, that lasted three, four issues, maybe a little bit not quite as intense as a full story, like the Defenders War or the, the Scroll Cree War. They were, the Scroll Cree War is probably the closest thing, but I mean, I, I really think through the 70s, there was never, I don't think there was a story that I can at least point to that was this long, this intense, and this specific as one storyline that um, we find out is really continuing on for the equivalent of three more issues by the time you count the double size of 137. So by the time this came, I'm like thinking, I I mean, I was so high, uh, or not high, but just so enthused about this. I was like, oh my gosh, this has got to be the end, the next one, because here they just keep building up, 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 and up. And he's done such a good job, This the Claremont and, and Byrne team, and Austin and everybody has just done such a great job of building it up so much that it's like, wow, is this you know going to start? And yet it's just here it's the penultimate uh, coming up in the next issue. So it's pretty crazy. Who did you have to talk to about it when you were a kid? My buddy Kirk. Hi, Kirk. Uh, um, and sort of my friend David. David really wasn't into the X-Men as much as Kirk and I were, but um, that was it. I mean... We didn't have magazines. We didn't have comic book shops. Uh, we didn't have internet. We didn't have really anything. Um, we just had we letters pages and um, bullpen bulletins to to even talk about what was happening amongst except for my friend Kirk. I grew up in a really rural area, so uh, there wasn't a lot of other kids around that really read comic books like my my friend Kirk and I and David and we just kind of gathered and pooled our comic books and our resources and 
had sleepovers on weekends and would read each other's comics and hang out and talk about, okay, what do you think is going to happen next? And wouldn't it be cool if uh, those types of things, always those scenarios, and we were just like in, late into the night. And then we get up on Saturday morning, watch the cartoons and eat cold pizza. Uh, the, cl- the closest <laughs> you kind of mentioned, you know, a, a, a multiple back-to-back issues that were dealing with the same, you know, plot line, the closest one I could think of off the top of my head was the Korvac saga, which I mm-hmm. think would have happened just mm. a, either around the same time or right before it. A couple years right before, before, I think that yeah. was in 77. Yeah, that was right. a couple years before. And if for full coverage of that, check out Avengers Spotlight, which is on the Two True Freaks Network also, handled by the Back to the Bins guys. Ooh, cool. Uh, they, they covered the, the whole Korvac saga. They actually uh, started... Uh, I mean, they've they've gone way back on the Avengers and covered a number of things. I don't know if they covered the Kree Scroll War, but they did cover, you know, that. And of course, Tim and I have covered. We covered the uh, Nefaria storyline there too. Yeah. But there's a lot of that uh, that history there that's been covered um, on the network. So you know, feel free to uh, check back on that and look at that. Doctor Bill and uh, Paul Spataro, uh, and even Scott Gardner at times when he was able to join them have. Yeah. Uh, put together a lot of really good shows that, that uh, I mean, in some ways they mock a lot of it because there's some, some aspects of it that are just pretty darn funny. And they, they've even covered, I think, the Celestial Madonna saga. <laughs> oh, don't even go there. Okay, well, let's come back. Oh, so, uh, bad. so uh, I mean, Tim, how was it for you, though? Um, well, I didn't, as I said, I didn't read these when they right, came out yeah, because uh, I didn't read these to probably... 84, 85, when I started collecting. So I, I said I was 18. So when I kind of got into comics, I came late. Uh, and she had already been resurrected by then, right? Yeah, that's what kind of, yeah. She was already showing up in, in FF and the Avengers. So that kind of, I think I was already knew of the, I was an X-Men fan. And, and of course, if you're an X-Men fan, you knew of, you know, burning Claremont. Of course, Claremont was still writing it at the time. But so I was trying to collect these and I got my trade and I read that. Uh, but, and I didn't, other than the guy at the comic store who was a, I used to go, go to a place called the Comic Strip. There was a guy named Jim that worked there that was, he, you could just sit there and just talk his ear off. There's uh, always a Jim. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> him and his wife ran it. And he, he was cool because sometimes if you could, if you didn't have money, he would let you take your books. If you were a, a, a returning customer, he knew you. You could take your books and he would just write in a ledger at how much you owed him. So when you came in the next week, you could pay last week's and your current. Uh, pulls, so or he would like, just sometimes he would just give you a book and, of the comic book shop. Yeah, he would yeah. give me. He's the one that gave me V for Vendetta. and said, "Here, just take it and read it. If you like it, you know, buy it from me. If you don't like it, I'll take I'll, I'll take it back." Did you buy it? So, I bought it. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, sounds like an amazing they, sales tactic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for see, the time. I, the comic book shop scene wasn't it wasn't even I w- it wasn't even on my radar. Um, when this was going on, of course, and I didn't have any friends that were actually reading it. It would be four or five years before I had anyone actually to talk to about any of this. And now when I did start going to the comic book shop, I went to a shop. The first shop I found was called Fantastic Worlds, which was uh, owned and run by a fellow named Bob Wayne, who uh, a little bit later went to work at DC Comics in public relations. And... um, his manager was a guy named Weldon Adams and Weldon now works for heritage auctions Ooh. and they have 
the uh, opening splash page from X-Men 137. The two-page spread where they're on Lalandra's, they get beamed aboard Lalandra's ship. They've got that, that. Amazing. Yeah, they've got that uh, that piece that's going up for auction here in just a few weeks, along with 40 other pages of burn work. And that page alone is expected to go for about $500,000. Whoa. whoa. Yeah, so, you'll be, so you'll be bidding on it, Brian? <laughs> Check yeah. this out, though. Um, just uh, a couple days ago, Byrne had, and Jim Warden, uh, Byrne had given Jim Warden several pages of his X-Men Elsewhen work uh, that he had decided not to keep as part of the story. Uh, and if you're familiar with those pages, it was the one dealing with the flying gal that we saw in Hidden Years. Um, so he took those pages out. There's three pages he took out that he said he wasn't going to be used, uh, using. And Jim Warden uh, put them up for sale. They got picked up, though, by, uh, is it Cooliness or Cooliness? And they're now offering to sell them for $6,000 a piece. Mm. So, I mean, it's just... And, and they bought them for about, he said they, they uh, raised the price about five times over what he sold it to them for. So, I mean, it's just insane right now, the prices that these things are going for. I've only got one page, one page of original comic book art, and that is a George Perez page from Teen Titans. I still haven't gotten me a burn page. And you Now, Tim, you've actually picked up an, an actual page, haven't you? Yeah, I've got, I actually have two. I've got... Uh... His Spider-Man Chapter One. I've got a, a page of that where he's fighting Electro, and then I've got uh, when I was in Boston, I picked up uh, the splash page from Crew. I think it's number three, and it's just penciled. They just took the scan from the pencil, he didn't ink it. Just, it's the scene where they're beaming to the uh, this uh, old old uh, retro uh, town. But uh, yeah, and he'll have some. We go and see him next month here in Dallas. He'll have. Uh, he won't have any obviously X Men stuff, but he'll have stuff. He'll have Star Trek stuff, and um, so the, and then some of them are pretty reasonable. You can get them for 150, 200 bucks. Yeah, and they've got some right now on the website. You can go to the. Um, it actually takes you to Jim Warden's site that uh, you can, you know, look through those. There's there's some from Generations Three. It's mostly shots of Lois and Lana, or or Pa Kent going through some of their stuff. Um, and there's some Hal Jordan stuff from Generations 2. That'd be cool. Yeah, when he's president of Jordan. Yeah. Um, now, one of the most, uh, the, I think the person that actually owns the most Burn original artwork is a fellow by the name of Nathan Greno. Are, are any of you familiar with him? Mm-mm. Don't know him. He is a director in Hollywood. Um, he directed Tangled, the animated feature mm-hmm. for, uh, for Disney. And uh, he's been working, you know, within Disney Animation for quite a long time. Uh, and he has just got page after page after page of uh, burn art. And he'll post on one of the other uh, uh, groups out there from time to time, you know, something that he acquired. But uh, he's somebody I'd like to, I'm going to try and see if I can get an interview with. Uh, and also uh, Weldon from Heritage Auctions. Uh, he and I um. talked about... Uh, doing an, an interview I, I actually I, I was trying to see if I could if we could get in to see the page but we can't mm. that's, <laughs> that sucks but you know hey because we were going to switch it with a forgery that's right <laughs> a, a la Thomas Brown affair, affair, right? that's right we were going to national treasure that stuff yeah 
Or Thomas Crowner. That's, that, that's a good yeah, reference. That. Mm-hmm. Well, guys. Well, uh, I yeah. think we need to kind of wrap this up. Yeah. Obviously, we're not going to get two uh, issues done tonight. Um, Say what? <laughs> well, let's, well, let's go ahead and close it up, and then we'll uh, discuss uh, our next step, okay? So do you want to list where it's been reprinted in? Is that some, something you wanted to do as well? Sure. or It's been reprinted on everything, including napkins. <laughs> I mean, it's by far probably the most reprinted next to maybe Dark Knight Returns. Right. Um, trade paperback out there. Yeah, there's there's several print editions with several covers. Uh, Classic X-Men 41, that was the uh, reprint series in the late 80s that also included uh, backup stories by John uh, by Bolton. Burn, uh, I mean, Claremont and Bolton. I mean, because Claremont actually wrote all those, didn't he? Um, I think Anna Chenty came in and wrote some too, but yeah. Yeah. John Bolton did most of the most of the art on that. Though from time yeah. to time they would get someone else to come in, yeah. but I always enjoyed those. Those it was almost like, you know, watching the director's cut. Yeah, those are the nice. ones with the Art Adams covers. Yeah, the yes. Art Adams covers, and, and even within the stories themselves, they would input, uh, it's like especially in the early ones, they would input extra pages and stuff. Though they did cut out the entire Warhawk issue out of there. They didn't even cover that. Yeah, I, I don't remember what the reason was for that. It's because it was just a fill-in issue anyway. But still, I'm like, though so he was actually a part of the plot point. He was the one that put in all the monitors for the Hellfire yeah. Club. They actually draw drew that in at at some point, and they're like, "Hey, yeah, this is part of the plot." It's like, okay, so I don't I don't know. <laughs> so Essential X Men Black and White and Burns artwork actually does look good even in Black and White, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I've got to have color as well. It's just too beautiful. And then um, Marvel Masterworks Uncanny X-Men Volume 5. Well, who said, was it, John, did you say you had the big oversized copy of this? Or is that David? I, yes, I do. I have okay. the 30th anniversary edition, which is like, it's a little, just a little bit, like maybe an inch uh, longer than the standard uh, trade paperback size. Okay. Now, is that, what is it, uh, what issues does that have in it? It has issues 129 through 137, Phoenix: The Untold Story, uh, with the original, uh, with the original ending, X Men 138. So it goes actually to 138. So as the epilogue, well, it has some of the backup stories from classic X Men. The one where Phoenix goes to heaven, or wherever that space is, and it just kind of gives some background about her realizing what happened. It has the bizarre adventure story where uh, Jean was a little girl and sh- her friend Annie passed away. And it has the uh, what if 27, what if Phoenix had not died? What if nice. Phoenix had, yeah, what if Phoenix had not died? You guys brought up color. There, There's a lot of books from this time period that have not aged very well. This is not one of them. Um the, co- the coloring is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, some of the unsung heroes from this time, right? The the letterers, uh, which the colors were by Bob Sharon, and the letterer was Tom Orzanchowski. Just phenomenal job. And there's a lot of dialogue in this book. And they just did a great job between the coloring and the lettering. Um, you know, it still feels good. It looks good. Still, you know, is crisp. Which is hard to say for a book that is, what, 39 years old? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You're right. 
Hey, did um, did any of that mention uh, the um, bizarre adventures story on Phoenix, the Bride of Atuma? Atuma? It's not Atuma. <laughs> <laughs> what about that? Uh, in Bizarre Adventures, they did. Uh, they had three different stories. One was a, a Phoenix story. One was Iceman, and one was Nightcrawler. Yes. And um, the 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 Phoenix story was written by Claremont and penciled by John Basima and inked by Klaus Jansen. And it was uh, Jean and her sister uh, in some local intrigue. But Jean was already Phoenix, so it was kind of like, okay, it was a little weird. I mean, it's been. <laughs> 30 plus years since I read it, but I right. remember not being too impressed. But at the same time, it's part of that whole saga. I'm surprised it wasn't reprinted anywhere else or mentioned there. Of course, the Iceman yeah. story was much better. It had George Perez art. Yeah, it is with the Tuma in it. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's... Uh, Sarah, so it is a Tuma? A Tuma is... <laughs> it's a, it is a Tuma. Yeah, it is a Tuma. It's not it's a Tuma. Tuma. It's not a Tuma. <laughs> It is. It is a Tuma. Sarah is visiting Jean's grave, and so she's remembering this adventure she had with her sister. And it is uh, in black and white, and I think uh, – no, it's issue 27 of Bizarre Adventures, so yeah, quite a ways away. But, yeah. Well, gentlemen, I hate to cut it short, but – Oh, no. No, you're uh, right. But it's, it's uh, let me late. ask you though. I, I, I got to ask just one last time though, guys. Did you like this book? Yeah, it was okay. <laughs> it was all right. <laughs> hey guys, it's been a pleasure, you know, talking with you on on this. Um, I'm really glad we, we decided to do this, and uh, you know, you, you don't even have to pay us, okay? <laughs> Wait, uh, I thought you were supposed to pay us. <laughs> no, you're interns. You don't get paid anything. That's right. Yeah. You did all the heavy lifting. It's great you, fun talking well, about one you, of my favorite you, stories of all time. And you two guys are uh, – well, John, you say you do a podcast, right? I Another, do. You do? It, I do, but it's not a comic-related one. Okay. But I'm, I was just saying both of you guys seem naturally – you know, you know, you have great voices for, for doing this kind of stuff. Yes. Um, you seem pretty natural about doing it uh, from someone who's – I've been doing it for three years with Brian, and I still don't feel like I know what I'm doing, but um, – well, thank you. I appreciate that. And yeah, I do not you. have a podcast. Well, now it's your time to, uh, to shine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do your own podcast. Just got to pick a lane. <laughs> not Elaine. Elaine. <laughs> <laughs> just, just not your lane. Just, That's right. <laughs> All right. So next, next episode will be uh, Uncanny X Men one thirty six. Yes. Correct. That Child would be a of light and darkness. All right. Well, hey, right. Th thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, and I really appreciate you guys. This was this was a lot of fun. Right. It didn't. It does not seem like three hours. No. 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 <laughs> I'm sure so, my wife's probably thinking I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, okay. So we can't ask where we, where can we find you, but I'll just say you know we've got David Thompson here and uh, John Hyatt. And, uh, of course, Tim Elliott, without the show was not possible. And uh, me, Brian Hughes. And we're going to say goodnight and thank you and have a pleasant tomorrow. We'll be back soon with the next chapter in the Phoenix Saga, the Dark Phoenix Saga. So for Third Degree Burn, take care.
Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gotta get burned at gmail.com that's g-o-t-t-a g-e-t-b-y-r-n-e-d at gmail.com drop us a line and tell us how we're doing till next time this has been third degree burn some men aren't looking for anything logical like money they can't be bought bullied reasoned or negotiated with some men just want to watch the world burn <laughs>